Hey, what's up, y'all? Uh, before we get started, uh, tonight kind of went a little bit unscheduled on the front end of the show, and I wanted to talk about mental health and depression and dealing with it. And I thought, especially with the holidays and everything that are going on now, that now made a good time to talk about this because it's very timely for myself. And it was kind of an epiphany for me type thing. Anyway, if you don't want to hear about all of that stuff, then check the timestamps when we actually get into the board game discussion. And normally I would do this, all this stuff at the back end of the show, but honestly, I think it's kind of important. And if you guys don't care, that's okay. Um, the joys of it being my show. So anyway, check the timestamps for when we start the board game discussion. If you were wanting to skip all that, otherwise, here we go. Heavy Cardboard, episode 149, Yin Yang. Coming to you from cold and dreary Boston, Massachusetts, welcome to Heavy Cardboard, where we talk medium and heavy strategy board games, war games, 18xx, and other related topics in the board gaming hobby. We're your hosts, I'm Edward. And I'm Martin. So, Martin. We'll start with you. Uh, how are you doing? Like, it's been a while since you've been on the show. Yeah, it's been uh, about a year. It was when you did the, uh, the top uh, 50, top 20 thing Serious? with you and Jess. It's been a year? It feels like about a decade. but And it feels like it was like a month ago at the same time. Like, really? <laughs> it's been a year? Wow. I didn't realize that. We should yeah. have you on more. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm always happy to pop on. But yes, uh, and I don't know, it's been, a, of course, a weird year, but selfishly, it's not been too bad for me because I've not had to travel. I've been in the same time zone all year. I've not got on an aeroplane the whole year. When was the last time that happened? Maybe in my very early 20s. I mean... It's ridiculous because, I mean, as soon as I got a, a, a real job out of college, I started doing the travel thing. So it's really is quite remarkable. You miss it? No. I mean, I, <laughs> I, miss, I miss fun travel. I mean, I miss going to see friends. I, you know, when we do, I mean, I could really do with a vacation because um, I just can't vacate when I'm at home. I, I, I just keep carry on working. So. I could really do with a vacation, but the work travel, you know, the time spent sitting around in airports, being jet lagged, I don't miss any of that at all. Fair. And same, the exact same stuff. Like I miss going to some conventions. I don't miss, and I miss going on travel for fun, um, which that didn't really happen terribly often, but when it did, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, to say it's been an odd year is a, uh, understatement, hasn't it? Oh yeah. Yeah. So, been... oh, oh no, I, I was going to say, so what have you been up to? Like just working and that's that? Yeah. Well, I mean, when I'm not traveling, I work from home anyway, which I did about half the time. So yeah, work from home, lots of Zoom calls, but we've been doing Zoom calls since 2011. So that's not 
well, not with Zoom, but video calls um, since 2011. Um, doing my usual work, writing stuff. Um, yeah, and I have a, the furthest I've gone has been Waltham. That's like a, a 10 to 15 minute drive. To yeah, well, maybe clear. 20, maybe 30. Yeah, it's not far. Depending on traffic, <laughs> but yes. <laughs> There's some really good restaurants out there. I hear I haven't been able to go to them because by the time I found out about them, um, COVID. So, yeah. Yeah, there's a great Cuban place to do a superb um, Cuban pork sandwich with a crackling nicely in the pork. You're not helping. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So for me, I mean, so it's been a while since done a podcast and that wasn't intentional. And so... Yeah, this is where it gets heavy, I guess. But for the last two, three weeks, I didn't realize it, but I've been dealing with a really pretty terrible bout of depression. And it didn't occur to me until like 15 minutes before we were going to go live tonight. And I'm taking a shower, getting ready and everything. And I was like, wow. And it wasn't just one thought. It was it started out with what do I want to listen to while I'm in the shower? And that just kind of brought it all on. And this sounds really weird and sounds really stupid probably to a lot of folks that don't deal with this. But I started thinking about for the last couple of weeks. Now I got Lincoln. So for those that don't know, I have a Greyhound now name's Lincoln. He is currently, I think asleep down on the couch and he's been great. It's been wonderful. However, I have really been struggling the last, I guess, honestly, three weeks. And I called Jess before we recorded this because I wanted to touch base with her and be like, do you think this is a good idea to talk about this? And she was like, hell yeah, do it. And so when I told her about this, she goes, yeah, I know. And I'm like, did you not want to clue me in? She said, I don't think you could have done anything about it. And what that looks like to me, so how do I know this has been happening? Um, Well, I didn't until, like I said, what, an hour ago? Um, There are days, like, don't want to get out of bed. Now, I have to because I have a dog now, so I got to take him for walks and I got to take him to the dog park and all that stuff. But outside of that, like, just almost a non-functioning human and not even realizing it like there are days like i don't want to clean the kitchen so dishes pile up or i mean stupid stuff there 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 were there wasn't a single day that went by that i wasn't in the studio for a fair chunk of the day every day i haven't been in the studio outside of the last since the last age of steam stream which was what a week ago and the weekly look at haven't even turned the light on in here And like, I haven't cut my nails since then, um, which is something that I try and stay on top. Like it's little stuff like this that you just, it's almost like I stopped taking care of myself. I was taking care of Lincoln, but I really wasn't doing a whole lot for me. And my medication that I take to keep things pretty even keeled, that kind of was a bit intermittent. Um, And by a bit, I mean, some days I remembered to take it, some days I didn't which really not good to do that, which kind of exasperates it, right? It it just builds upon itself. So then 
one day, like I stay on the couch all day or, or stay in bed all day and I'll stay away from Slack or stay away from Twitter or stay away like, because I'm scared. It just feels insurmountable. Like I don't want to, I don't want to talk to anybody because I don't want to face it, but I don't realize that I don't want to face it. And so I just avoid it. And if you avoid it, then I'm not facing it. So it's not happening. But I don't realize it when you're in it. And then at some point when you do realize it, then all of a sudden you're like, oh God, how much do I have to sift through to catch up? And then it becomes, it feels insurmountable. So that just piles on it even more. And yeah, didn't even occur to me until like an hour ago that I've been really, really in a pretty rough spot the last better part of three weeks, but I didn't realize it. Um, and I think from what I'm hearing, just did realize it, but she didn't know what to do about it for me. And it's not her job. You know what I mean? Um, and with COVID and everything, I can get away with, nah, get, that's, that's the wrong way to put it because it, it, it sounds like I'm like playing hooky from school or from work or whatever. And to, to some degree, I guess I am, but I don't realize I'm doing it. And then it becomes embarrassing. Like, I don't want to. I don't want to be in the public. And then on top of it, when I was thinking about all this, I kind of felt burnt out on everything for a little while. But I didn't realize it because the depression feeds the burnout. The burnout feeds the depression. And I just, and it just, if we didn't have this today, it'd still be going on. And I think having a hard deadline, okay, we're going to record tonight. I committed to this with Martin. And I think that helped snap me out of it a little bit. So I took my medicine, took my shower, straightened up a little bit, but there's still more to do around the, the apartment uh, when we're done and everything or tomorrow. And when I was on the phone with Jess, I asked her, I said, hey, would you do me a favor? I said, look, you're not my mom. It's not your job to babysit or to be my, hey, come on, let's get your ass in gear and, and come on, let's do this. Let's work together. She has said it previously, but without really, she doesn't want to, she's not my mom. So she doesn't want to force me to do this stuff. But when we were on the phone, I asked her, I said, look, for the next couple of days, can you really help me with that? Because sometimes, um, when I want to, it just feels insurmountable. And so having a cheerleader, you know, not a mom that I'm going to get in trouble, but just somebody to be, Hey, supportive. Hey, come on, get up. Let's go down to the studio. I'll work on my laptop. You work on the computer and let's get this shit done. Come on. And she was like, absolutely. I will do that. So, so yeah, so that, that I think will help. Um, and, and this tonight has, has helped, but without having people coming over and being isolated and everything, I think I think it finally just got to be a bit too much for me. And so for the last few weeks, it's really 
It's really affected me, and I had no idea until today. So, um, I the thing is, I don't even know where I'm going with this, right? I just, I don't know. I was thinking, if I'm dealing with this, maybe other people out there are, and maybe hearing it will help somebody snap themselves out of it. I, I, I don't know what the right word, right phrase is there, but... But yeah, I mean, with the holidays, people can't or shouldn't be or can't or fill in the right words, can't travel to family, can't see friends. Sure, there's Zoom and there's all that, but it's really easy to avoid that if you don't really want to do it. Even if you do want to do it, it's still easy to avoid it because sometimes you just can't. And so, uh, yeah, so yeah, stuff I've been dealing with. And on the one hand, the shitty thing about it is I feel like I'm making an excuse for why like I haven't done the show much in the last couple of few weeks. And so I feel guilty and which makes me feel worse. But at the same time, it's a real thing. So it's, I don't know. I'm trying to, I'm not trying to use it as an excuse, but it's, it's the real reason. So where's the, line of distinction between reason and excuse. I guess as long as I actually do pull myself out of it, then I guess I'm not using it as an excuse. I'm using it as the reason. Get your shit together and let's get back to work. So I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with it, but it's just something that really hit me hard uh, a little bit ago. And again, because holidays and with everything that's been going on with COVID and Things seem like they're getting worse and not better, even though there's supposed to be a vaccine in the next nine months for the general masses. But yeah, so if any of y'all are out there dealing with it, just know that you're not alone and hey, it's okay to not be okay, you know? So. And, and thank you for sharing that, Edward. I think it, there's going to be lots of people in similar situations and the isolation, I'm sure, is particularly difficult. And it's always difficult around sort of traditional holidays like Thanksgiving and Christmas when people really notice the fact that, hey, we don't get to see people. And I'm really lucky having Cindy around. Uh, we we kind of like each other, so it works out really well. <laughs> um, and we're also fortunate that we've got a, a sort of circle of friends in Melrose, and it's not quite been so cold yet that we can't spend a bit of time outside. So Tuesday nights, we uh, one, it was one of the group's birthday, so he lit a fire and we sort of stood around the fire outside and that was good. Um, but uh, unfortunately, the next few months are going to be rough. Um, I, I think the vaccine will kick in and the vaccination of people should kick in fairly well early next year. Um, by spring, hopefully we'll begin to start to see a bit of normality. But uh, the next two or three months, they're going to be quite harsh, I think. I think you're right. And uh, I'm glad I realized it when I did. And, and Jess is only here half the time because of her personal situation she's got going on. Um, I only get to see her half the time. And so the other half of the time, it makes it really easy to be kind of a recluse if, if I allow myself. Uh, even though I'm an extrovert, still deal with this stuff, you know? So anyway. So, yeah. And again, it's not, it's not an excuse for any, it's just, Hey, 
this is what I've been dealing with. So I hope that nobody out there can relate. <laughs> In all seriousness, I hope nobody can. I hope everyone's like, dude, you talk about board games for a living. Get over yourself. It's fine. You're fine. And if no one's dealing with it, then all the better. But if anybody is, know that you're not alone. So, yeah. And, hey, if you ever want to talk, um, hit me up. There are lots of ways to get in touch with me. I, I am happy to listen. Um, yeah. And it's a whole lot easier to help others instead of yourself. You know what I mean? So I, I'm happy to do so. But uh, not that I'm some sort of psychologist or anything like that. Just. I can be a pair of ears to listen. So anyway, enough about that. Let's move on. Let's talk board games. What you been playing? Well, um, well, of course, I've not been at HCHQ because that's been shut down. Um, yep. But uh, on, on, the, on the good side of it, I've actually had a lot of reconnection with my original board game um, friends back in England. Um, we've that's been- awesome. Yeah, it has actually been really good. So pretty much every Saturday, we uh, fix up a Zoom call and uh, get on BGA or Wattisha. Um, We've not really gone for Tabletop Simulator. We kind of feel that if you're going to have to play games on a computer, at least the computer can keep track of the game for you. Um, (laughs) Fair. (laughs) I think that's part of my apprehension of playing a lot of games online. I agree. Yeah, but the BGA in particular, does quite often a good job with quite a few games. So it's been interesting to see which ones have kind of um, grabbed me. It's, and it's a good contrast, of course, because you know, with, with, in the previous year, I was always a little bit feeling of, uh, we're playing all of this new stuff, which we have to do as part of HCHQ thing. We've got to play the new things. And I wanted to play a lot of the old stuff because I, I like the old classics that are proven good for a reason. And now we've flipped it around the other way around, and I'm playing all the old stuff and uh, not getting to play anything new much. But I've, I'll bring out a few highlights of the old stuff, of, of things that I think I, I have some thoughts on. Um, the first one I, I might mention is there's a really quite nice implementation of Seven Wonders on BGA. And, and Seven Wonders, it's never really excited me that much as a game. But I've always said, you know, it is the best game I have that plays seven people. Fair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not, not a lot of games that that player can't. Yes, I hear all of you out there with Struggle of Empires. I understand. <laughs> different game. Different, different, different uh, subset of folks are going to play that. But uh, I've come to a, a quite admire it, really, because pretty much every time we play, we'll throw in maybe a game or two or seven wonders to warm up and, or maybe a game later on. And um, it's very, really quick because we all know the game. And the, the thing that comes through is even though we've now played it a ton of times, it's still interesting. And that's, I think, really the mark of a good game, that it can still engage your interest. Um, there, there are definitely uh, diminishing uh, games of diminishing returns. So the more you play it, the less you want to play it. And it's good to hear that seven, I haven't played seven wonders in years. So glad to hear that you're enjoying it. Yeah. So the, the, uh, the next one on the list I'll mention is, is a real blast in the past, which is Alhambra, which people may not have come across. It, it was one of the games that came out right in that sort of late nineties, early two thousands. So when 
I first got back into the hobby when I re sort of re-entered in the mid-2000s. It was one of the few games out there. You know, it won the Spiel of the Ara. It's not a great game in many ways. There's, the decisions aren't terribly deep, um, but it's very agreeable, um, particularly when you've got a bunch of friends chatting. Um, there's there's good opportunity for a good bit of table talk. And a very important feature, it plays six. And in particular, the group I play with when I'm catching up with my UK friends, there's six of us, two other couples and, and Cindy and I. So games that play six become particularly valuable. Um, and Alhambra's worked fairly well. Um, it was originally only on Watershire, and the implementation was a bit ropey. But there's a new implementation on BGA, which is almost perfect. Um, and that's, that's really good. I don't know that I've ever played Alhambra. I mean, I'm familiar with it. I've seen it. But I don't know that I've ever played it. It's worth a try. I mean, it, it's a light game, definitely. Not heavy decision-making or anything, but it's kind of fun. I have a fondness of it because it was one of the early ones. Oh, sure. That makes sense. Yeah. And then... So what else? Yeah, another one on the list. Um, one that has really risen in my rankings, personal rankings, has been Concordia. Now, I liked Concordia beforehand. I mean, not Shrey level of liking it, but I, I liked it. <laughs> I was going to bring up, like, the, like how, how high of a level are you enjoying Concordia? Yeah, so before Concordia was, you know, on, on heavy cardboard rating, it would be a five, not a six. But now it's propelled itself into a six. Um, really? Yeah, and it's really because, again, of the... We've played a lot of games of it. And it's still interesting every time. I'm still in this situation of I'm thinking four or five turns ahead. I've got my plan, but I know at any moment someone's going to do something and suddenly the plan's going to be blown up or there's a new opportunity or oh, somebody else is going for that. Maybe I want to zig a little bit. And I, I like that back and forth in the game. Um, and we've explored more maps. Um, and the game has just really continues to keep shining however often we seem to play it and for me the ray of uh of rain on this concordia is a good game but every time it gets brought up hey you want it no i i just i never ever want to play concordia there's nothing wrong with the game the game's fine it's just every single time i've been like eh, yeah yeah, nah, like it just. For those on the podcast, we saw a very expressive hand movement there from Edward. <laughs> it's just meh. I, I just can never get excited to play Concordia, and I don't know why. I, I it, But it's just one of those games that I have, it just never hit with me, and I will avoid it at pretty much all costs. Not that there's anything wrong with the game. Because, I mean, I know it's popular and I know it's a, it's a solid game. And Matt Gertz did a great job with it. I just, it's as boring as boring can be for me. And it never gets me excited. There are those games to where you feel that way about them until you sit down and you play it. And then you're like, ah, why don't we play this more? Concordia is not that game for me. It's just like, eh, all right, when, yeah, no. So, but hey, I'm glad to hear you guys are enjoying it. Yeah, I mean, I'm... I'm very, I said, very taken with it. A very interesting aspect of it as well 
We play on Boitageur because that's where it plays. When you play Concordia live, um, you don't know what score you've got as you're going on in the game. You only find out the score at the end. With uh, Boitageur, the complete game state, including your score, your hand, you can look at everybody else's hand. It's like playing open hand, open discard pile. It's complete open information. It's interesting how that subtly changes the play of the game. Oh, I could. I, I, I think. I think that would be a pretty massive change because it's always a big surprise at the end. Because how many you know uh, different scoring cards do you have at the end of the game and all that stuff? Everybody's hand is different. So having that track as it goes, I think that would definitely put a different spin on it. I don't think it's going to motivate me to want to play it more. But do you? Which do you find that you enjoy more? Which. I'm not sure. I'd like. I'm. I'm looking forward to. I mean, we've played a bit of two-player, um, Cindy and I, on some two-player maps. Um, but I'd really like to try it again with a larger group to get a feel of what it is. The interesting thing is, it's not just you don't. Um, when you're playing um, on cardboard, not just do you not know what everybody else is doing. You don't really know what you're doing, because you're not counting up your points. You're not figuring out. Oh, if I do this, I'll get this many points. If I do that, I'll get that many points and of course you do when you get it all open which of course has a disadvantage that it does induce ap um and you definitely get people spending a lot of time figuring out how they can get one or two more points which doesn't make for fun for everybody um and that's the one downside to open scoring stuff like that right yeah because min maxing stuff but yeah that's interesting I'm, i'm curious to hear um once you're able to play more which you enjoy more the open scoring not that it's closed scoring in regular Concordia. It's just you're not tracking it, and I don't have the bandwidth to be able to do that. Yeah, and then uh, the last on, on the list that I thought I'd make a mention of is uh, Race to the Galaxy, um, which is kind of the uh, a kind of opposite of Seven Wonders in a way, in that it, it's another game that works really well with a larger player count because it's simultaneous actions. But the learning curve for Race to the Galaxy is a vertical cliff about 100 feet tall. So it's been interesting. I mean, many of these games, I mean, Concordia, I taught everybody else in the the game group how to play it. Race to the Galaxy, I was, no way I was going to want to teach people that game. It's it's a horror to teach. Um, I'm I'm looking forward to the day that you tackle it someday. It's it, it, well, the funny thing is, is we were going to actually have a week uh, or a race week here at HCHQ with you, me, Shrey, uh, maybe Jess, um, before COVID happened to where we were going to do race for the galaxy. We were going to do roll for the galaxy. Uh, we were going to do new frontiers, like basically like every iteration of race for the galaxy. Right. And, and San Juan and uh, like all of this. And then COVID happened. So that's still going to happen, hopefully sometime in 2021. And race is a game that has always intrigued me. I remember learning how to play it or getting taught it, I should say, when I was really early on in the hobby and just watching the people that have played it a bunch play it when you're first learning it and you're just trying to understand, wait, what does this color outline mean? What it, it, it was just beyond my grasp. I was just going through the motions, playing and, and scoring a bunch of points. I got housed, mind you, and I still am nowhere near anywhere good at the game, but I'm very intrigued by Race for the Galaxy. But yes, the, the learning curve for that game is, 
I think significant is a is a good way to put that. Yeah. Because the iconography in that game, it's just it's a big barrier to entry for getting started. But once you get started, it's a, I mean it's like a 15 minute game. Yeah, exactly. It's a fantastic filler once you've gone through, you know, it's 2 hours to teach and 20 minutes to play. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's not just the iconography, although the iconography certainly does bug people. I mean, it doesn't bother me that much, but it, it certainly does bother quite a lot of people. Um, but it's also, it's because it's all about card combos, um, it takes a while to play the game a few times to begin to realize what combo possibilities are and when, when you're going to find things that will fit together nicely. Um, and that definitely, it takes a while to get a sense of the various rhythms that you want to get into in the game. Um, and that also makes it tough, I think. But once you've got the hang of it, I mean, I think it's a really rich game that gives you a lot of thinking and a lot of response for a very fast game. Do you play, when you play it online, where are you playing that online, by the way? Uh, Board Game Arena. Okay. And when you're playing it, is it just the base game? Is it with expansions? Because there are we, like approximately 74 different expansions <laughs> for race, I think. Yeah, we play it with the first two expansions. And which ones are those? Do you I know? can't remember the name of them. Okay, um, so the first two. So for yeah. those cracking at home, why specifically those two? Is it anything that specific that they bring that that's why? Well, it's partly my selfishness because when I, early on when I got Race of the Galaxy, I thought, oh, this is going to be a really cool game to have when you've got six people around. So I bought the first two expansions because they scaled up from four to six. Um, but ah. then... Then I discovered reading around on the, on the interwebs that a lot of people feel the first two expansions are actually the best two to use, but not takeovers, okay. which is part of the second expansion, but it's a module that's dropped. So we use the extra cards, the goals, and not the takeovers. Now, the people who are most familiar with the game, which is a German couple, um, they also often play with a third expansion, um, but we've kind of diced away from that a little bit because we need to give them some kind of disadvantage because they've played this game so often they'd be toasting us all the time otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I know that uh, the expansion Gathering Storm or wherever that fits in that, in that chronological order somewhere in there, I know that has a solo variant in there and it makes race soloable. So I plan on doing that uh, this side of Christmas, even though I was hoping to save it for... Uh, whenever we're able to do like race week and I still might do it again, but I think uh, I want to play it. And so, yeah, so that, that yeah, Gathering Storm, I think is the first one. Um, okay. All right. And I don't know whether you have it. If you don't have it, you can borrow my copy. I do. <laughs> Rio Grande was kind enough to send me pretty much the most of the stuff for race. So including the new edition of it in the whole nine yards. So yeah, I'm, oh, I'm nice. excited. I have, I haven't broken in, broken it out yet, but I'm planning on doing it this side of Christmas. So looking forward. Yeah. To it. It's, it's definitely one of my desert Island hall of fame games, race of the galaxy. It's once you've got people who know it, it's fantastic. It's just finding people who know it. <laughs> right. And being willing to crest that, 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 both learning curve as well as uh, exp uh, experiential difference between uh, skill levels. But I think people, once you, once it clicks, then it's just a matter of who plays it better. Right. And, and, and going from there. Yeah. 
Yeah. All right. So, so what about on stream stuff? I know you got some notes on that yep. stuff. Yeah, well, I'll just, just conclude by saying it has just been really fun to play with my old gaming group every week now, who normally I see maybe, you know, once every year or every two years. Um, and the people, you know, I've been playing with, you know, the two of them that I went to high school with, you know, so since we've been playing since the 70s. That's um, awesome, man. That's so it, really, really cool. It is really nice, and uh, it's just a great group of people. So I'm glad to be back with them. We're also doing some online playing with some other friends. We've got some friends in Brooklyn, a friend in San Francisco. So actually, the gaming has been quite good, even though it's been the relatively limited set um, of what's on BGA. But anyway, on stream, yes. So on stream, we've done a few things together. So um, the first one on my list here is Gulf Mobile in Ohio which uh, was with the uh, Auto Edward Cuba Mover um, oh, device. Right. yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a win- well, it was a winsome game originally, right? It, it was, yes. And, and coming out from, coming out, came out, I'm not sure, uh, from, uh, from Rio Grande as well. Yep. Yeah, a cracking little Cube Rails game. I think Cube Rails games are definitely something I really like, except for the fact that they don't tend to play for two players. Fair. Yeah, you definitely want a bigger group for yeah. those in general, whether it's, I mean, whether it's a, a GMO or an Irish Gage or any of those, I agree. Age of Steam, for that matter, yes. Yeah, simple rules, interesting play. I really enjoyed it. I would get it if it played, but since it doesn't play for two, I'm, I'm always reluctant to get a game I can't play at home with Cindy. And then we had Pax Viking, which that was, was on uh, on TTA. Yep, yep, that was on Tabletop Simulator, and um, that was interesting. That's uh, kind of a, a another potential intro Pax game. Um, the rules not as complicated, um, possibly even with a rule book that's comprehensible, which you know is not usually the Pax way. Um, <laughs> but they're they're. Uh... They're, they're definitely putting concerted effort into this, this rule book to make it so. So we'll, we'll see how it ends up. Um, but yeah, I, I actually am supposed to have the uh, advanced production, like the proof copy is being sent to HCHQ. It's not even going to Sweden. It's going straight here. So Jess and I are going to be in charge of QCing, the, uh, so quality control of the uh, the print proof of Pax Viking. And I think that's supposed to be sometime this month. Hmm. So I'm, I'm excited to actually get that. And when that happens, that means we're going to be able to, we're going to be playing it here in studio and possibly being able to play it remote. I'll figure out a way to do that. Oh, that was nice. I know I, I liked Pax Viking. Um, the rules weren't too complicated. The gameplay was interesting. You're bouncing around a map. I always like games that bounce around a map. Um, and, uh, I, I, it definitely sits in that same kind of starting starter packs thing that Pax Premier has, although I don't think it's as good as a game as Pax Premier. It didn't have that same, oh, wow, I've got to buy this right away, which I had the first time I played Pax Premier. And I'm curious if that's because what if they'd come in the other order? I wonder if you'd played Pax Viking first. As opposed, and that instead of PAX Premier Second Edition, I wonder if that would be the case. I'm not saying it would have. I'm just curious. Yeah, it's if that it's were... hard to tell, isn't it? I mean, 
Again, Pax Bermira, it was quite a whole bunch of things. The gameplay, the kind of atmosphere it sets up for you, the fantastic components that were just kind of off the scale, not just to, in terms of quality, but imagination and the, the artistic thinking behind it, which is why we gave it the, the Golden Elephant. I mean, it's just an amazing game. Um, and it'd be interesting if it'd been the other way around how it would have felt. But uh, in, I'm certainly looking forward to giving Pax Viking uh, a little bit more attention uh, if we can at some point. Yeah, same, definitely. What else you got? Well, next up was Tinner's Trail. The uh, kind of lost one of those Martin Wallace games that kind of uh, disappeared, but is coming back apparently uh, with a reprint. Um, it's interesting. I, I, I feel that it, it's kind of was a cube rails game, but not so much building railways as digging mines. And I liked how thematic was. I felt it had a good quality in terms of theme. And I liked its simple rules, had that simple rules thing that, that, uh, and deep play that Cube Rails games tend to have. So it, it clicked on a number of levels for me. And they say that when they're doing the reprint, they're going to get a usable two-player version, which is certainly interesting. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. I, in, I, I was surprised to see this, but somebody had commented, I think it was on Twitter about it, uh, about the uh, playthrough, and they were like, hey, did you see a new versions coming and the publisher actually respect and I forgive me, but I can't remember what publisher it was that is, is bringing out the new version. They said that they've addressed all the uh, crit criticisms that we had for that game about the uh, kind of the, the, um, the market for the buying of victory points and how that kind of felt a little bit rote and how that just was a, a almost a non-decision in it and that 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 being one of the critiques but all of the critiques that we had for it when we streamed that that they actually were addressed during their uh play testing of the new version of the game so i'm super excited to check this out i'm really excited for that yeah i think that would be uh, really good to see because uh um i I've, it's got great potential i think as a game and um i'd like to definitely like to see it come through Alley Cat Games is who's getting the new version. Okay. That's who it is. Thank you to Red Eyed Ghost for, for reminding me of that. All right. And then Galenis. Mm. What'd you think of that? I liked it. I, again, it, it, the weight level was, it had that, I keep saying it's don't know, the simpler, simpler rules, but deeper play. And it's hard to tell from just one play because we only played, we didn't even do a practice game with this one. Yes. Um, all I can say is if you watch the stream, yeah, I, I only shared the truth on that with the herd. I think that's probably the best way to keep it. But, uh, I, yeah, the rules were quite easy to figure out in the middle of playing it. And, um, yeah. But I, the nice thing about that game was how it took the worker placement um, process really well, that you would you're placing workers on your spot and then at some point you shift to action. You, placing the worker on the action spot doesn't invoke the action. It just says, I'm going to take the action later on. And then at some point you stop placing workers and instead you start taking actions. But of course, then there's a timing thing. The longer you go before you switch to taking actions, the more actions you'll take. But then the problem is other people will have taken actions before you 
and as a result, there'll be less stuff to take. So it sets up a really nice tension between do I want to go for a few actions, but the best pickings, or do I wait? And that trade-off was really nifty, and I, I felt that really brought the game into a, 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 an interesting form of worker placement. Yeah, that, that's the main hook, right, is, is when do you flip that switch from choosing what actions you're going to want to do to actually, okay, now I'm going to start executing for all the reasons you just said. And it definitely was an exciting tension. And it, it, it felt good because you never knew, especially in a four-player game, so much can happen between, do I place this extra worker or can I risk it to wait to pull the trigger? to be able to, you know, be the first to do X, Y, or Z, whatever those are there. And, and yeah, made for an excellent tense gameplay, I thought. And the theme, I mean, it's, it's medicine in ancient Rome. There's a topic that you don't think about much. That's true. Because I'll be honest, when I think of medicine 2000 years ago, I think don't get sick. <laughs> <laughs> Yep, that's probably the best advice. Yeah, so, uh, and good luck with that. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it, and I'm excited to see what they, uh, I mean, it's an ever-changing because that was, that was I'm not going to say early along in the, uh, the playtesting. It's, it's fairly, fairly far along in the process, but to see where it is now and to see where it ends up in the, uh, in the final version, I'm curious to see where that game ends up. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. And then, Age of Steam, Southern China. Yeah, that was uh, first Age of Steam since the COVID hit. Because um, the last time I played it was when I played it on stream with, Cy with Cypress map. Um, oh, wow. Okay. All and right. yet again, losing to Edward at Age of Steam is like losing to Jess at everything, by, by the seams of it. It's the regular pattern. <laughs> um, giving away the, the result of the game there. But uh, what a corking little map. I mean, just, again, it shows how Age of Steam does so well at take a, providing a, enough of a platform that you can just tweak the rules a little bit and produce a very interesting game. So the big rule tweak here is you can't have ownership of more than four tracks, more connections. Once you get your fifth connection, you've got to donate it to the state, and anybody can use it for free. Um, and as a result, you have to juggle what you're going to do with your, your ownership and think about, well, I'm never going to get more than four income off a route. I mean, I can use somebody, one of these neutral routes and I don't have to pay for it, um, but I'm still only going to get four if I get four of my own track there. And it alters the way you think about the track layout. It think, alters the way you think about um, how to rapidly to capitalize your railway. Um, I, I thought Vince who is, uh, of course, a herd member, did a really great job at producing a, a really interesting map. And on top of all that, when the state takes over whatever rail line that you're, you're, giving, you're voluntarily giving up, they pay you a dollar per tractile that you give up, as well as getting a, a bonus token that allows you to either be able to build additional track later on um, or, or to deliver as if your locomotive had a plus one. And the fact that there is no engineer and there is no locomotive special actions in that game. And the only way to be able to do that is to have those tokens. 
it really kind of turns the way you normally think of Aegis theme, kind of turns it on its head and makes you think about it in a, in a different way, which when you've played Aegis theme a lot can be really difficult, but makes it just that much more fresh and, and exciting because you're having to think about it in a different way. So yeah, really, really good job with that map. One I definitely want to explore more. Uh, I had a lot of fun with that. Yeah, it reminded me a little bit of the uh, the way things twisted on the island map, where again you had you know, core actions not working the same way that they normally work, and you just have to approach the whole thing differently. And it's just such a great system that it encourages that kind of thing. You know, and and the great thing about it is you just say here's the rules changes five minutes or less you explain the rule changes and then you're in and everyone's trying to figure out okay what the hell is going on with this and it it produces a really good experience that's that's why age of steam is i mean unsurpassed in that regard in this hobby uh 150 160 maps and still new maps are getting produced every year and it's yeah it's an amazing system so Glad it exists, for sure. I'm surprised that it's not. And I mean, you know me, I'm not big on, on online implementations, but I'm surprised nobody's done that with yeah, I, I, like that. I think there me. might be a, a, what, something on Vassal or Tabletop Simulator or something, but I said we haven't kind of delved into those. Um, but it would be so nice to have it on BGA because, A, I love the game so much. B, you've got the variety in maps. And, of course, as a factor I've come back to several times, I want games that I can play with six players so that we can have our whole group together. Because, you know, I, I, I understand the kind of serious gamers. If there's six of them, you'll split into two tables of three. But, you know, we're not serious enough for that. We're social. We want to be together. So we want the six of us to have a shared game experience. There's not many games, particularly deeper games, that will go for six. At Age of Steam, there are many maps that will play six. It's a fair point, and I think that's completely reasonable. Um, Yeah, and as I've said more times than I can count, you just got to make sure that you match up the player count with the map, right? So as far as me... um, well, you mentioned a couple of them. Uh, so Aegis Theme, Southern China, Galenis, uh, but also Bios Me- uh, Mesofauna, which basically takes Bios Megafauna and, and makes it simpler. And the version that we've played it, so there are three levels of difficulty in that game. There is the, uh, the Caterpillar, there is the Cocoon, and then there's Butterfly. The version that we played was Cocoon, which is kind of the Goldilocks of it i'll be honest once we actually get the the actual game i imagine the majority of the herd's going to be playing the butterfly version which is the the bigger version um but it's still not that terribly difficult but pretty cool pretty cool idea herbivores carnivores uh you know it it kind of has in some regard a packs like feel because there's a uh, there's a market of cards in which you're going to be able to be building up your species of different um, insects and, and going out and populating the, uh, the world. And pretty cool game. Uh, pretty far along as far as development on that one. I enjoyed it. 
Uh, I'm curious to see where it goes, but, uh, but yeah. And, and my only, the only the physical version doesn't exist yet. Only played it on, on tabletop, uh, simulator. And you know how I feel about games there. So yeah, I'm curious to actually play the physical version, but I enjoyed it. So we'll see how that goes. And then, uh, a couple of small games, Seastead, which, uh, I haven't played Flotilla, which apparently this is set in that universe and kind of boils down the bigger game that is Flotilla into a two-player version. And the first time we messed with it, uh, Jess and I were just like, eh, really? Not so great. And then it got better as we played it. Uh, you know, when we first, uh, the first couple rounds, we were like, eh. But the more we played it, the more we enjoyed it. And playing it a second time, we enjoyed it more. It's a it's a pretty straightforward, pretty simple uh, kind of worker placement-esque uh, game that I think is fine. I don't think it's anything to write home about. And it's not uh, anything anyone should be racing out to. Oh, absolutely, you must go get it. But I think it's worth checking out. I enjoyed it. It was fine. Kind of in a water world without the IP setting. And then uh, New York Zoo from Capstone Games. So this is kind of a, uh, what do you call it? Poly, polyominal, uh, I think. Uh, Tetris type game. Yeah, um, polyominal. Yeah, there you go. And you're just, uh, you're building up your, your personal zoo. And surprisingly hard, surprisingly uh, competitive. And you can play more than two players. It plays, I think it was two to four. We played it two player. And really loved it. Really enjoyed hmm. that. And and all the pieces are shaped differently to where it's a matter of no matter how many times you've played it, it's going to play out differently because the distribution of the tiles that you're going to be putting into your zoo and then putting animals into the pen. And then when you complete a pen, you can then uh, get special uh, special buildings, which fill up more space on your player board. And it's a race game to be the first player to fill up your player board. And I'm normally, uh, whatever, on, on Tetris E games, but I got to say, I really enjoyed that one. It's got big, chunky wooden bits for the animals. That's fine. And I'm sure the younger crowd will definitely, uh, definitely enjoy that. That was fine. I thought the gameplay, though, was fantastic. Hmm. I really enjoyed playing New York Zoo a lot. A lot more than I thought I would, because when I talked to Clay about it, Clay's like, yeah, I think people are really going to enjoy it. He said, but you, eh, maybe not. I don't know if your crowd is really going to, uh, going to dig this one or not. And uh, yeah, I think he's wrong. I think folks will, because it's a really good, really good game. I'd like to give it a try. I've, I've done a few polyomino. I don't know how really how you pronounce that word. Yeah, go with it. <laughs> Tetris. That's why I cheat and call them Tetris games. Yeah, everybody knows what that is, and I can say that. <laughs> yeah, I, I've. I mean, I, I kind of appeals to me the poly polyomino thing. The best implementation I've played of that is Feld's Amerigo. I don't know whether you've come across it, Stefan. I have, uh, and that that is one of those games that I mentioned, diminishing returns. Where the more I played it, the less I liked it. Like the first time I right. played it, really enjoyed it. And I got to the point where, yep, I'm all set with that. I'm good. Okay. So yeah, I played it about, I've only played it twice. So uh, I, I thought I did, it would appeal because 
unlike so many failed games, you really actually are very competitive with other people on the board. Um, but uh, as I said, I've only given it a couple of plays, so I, can't I, say I, more I think than you're that. really going to enjoy this. Uh, yeah, uh, you know what? I got to run Great uh, Zimbabwe over to you. So when I do, I will uh, I will bring New York Zoo mm. over for you as well. Yes. So, what have you acquired? Um, I would say of, of recent, but, you know, go back as far back as you want. I, I, well, I'm I, going back to when we last did this, so it's oh, a year good ago. Oh, good God. Well, I, good I thing you don't acquire many... a lot of games. <laughs> exactly. I've only actually ac truly acquired four games, I would say, in, in, the, in this course of this year so, uh, so far. Um, so the first one I'll mention is uh, Yokohama, um, which we uh, got right at the beginning of the year. And uh, that, I, I had good uh, expectations of it because I'd played it once or twice. Um, we're big fans of Istanbul, which has a very similar mechanic, which I really like, which is, it's, I, I, I call it a worker movement. Uh, you have a, a, a bunch of tiles on the board and each tile represents an action. And you have a worker on the board, and you have to move the worker to the tile you want to take as an action, and that makes the action happen. And there's constraints about how you do that movement, right? Because you've, each game has different rules about you can't quite move anywhere, you've got to go in a certain way, and other players' pieces can either make it more expensive or block you completely. And Yoka and Istanbul, will, I really like, but it's a bit of a thin game. I don't feel it's got a lot to it. I don't. I enjoy playing it, but I don't feel it's got enough to really get my teeth into. Yeah, not and enough Yoka, meat. Yeah, and Yokohama promises certainly from my previous place to have that um, greater amount to it. And fortunately, it absolutely worked out, and Cindy liked it as well. And as a further bonus, a BGA implementation popped up as well, so I was able to teach it to all my remote friends. So Yokohama's definitely been a hit. It, it's been a while since I've played it, but I remember enjoying it, and I remember it, you know, it's you drop workers off as you go. Do you not? It, does it not have, it's where it's like almost like, like you said, your worker movement, but like a trail that you leave behind from where your worker goes? I know you do in Istanbul. I can't, ah, it doesn't matter. Yeah, Istanbul is where you drop off and pick up. With uh, Yokohama, you have these assistants that you have to place, and you can only go where you've got assistants. So you it. have to kind of set things up with your assistants. <laughs> and then after that, I mean, it's a, the scoring is just kind of a point salad that usually I don't like. But because the, the action selection mechanism is so good, I think it makes up for the, the whole point salad thing. Yeah, I think that, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, but we we should do that as a stream sometime. I think we should. Once we're back to uh, back to normal, Are you. It, it, the want. list of games that we need to, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it, it's extensive. So what else? So the next one on my list, if you just describe it in terms of its mechanisms, you probably want to shriek. A race game built on a deck builder. I mean, does that sound awful? A, ra a deck builder race game. And then I might mention, well, it's designed by Ryan. Oh, hold Nitsia. on. That's Dominion. <laughs> is it not? No, this is a race game as in moving across a board race. Oh, race game. 
Okay. I was like, no, right. actually, you just described Dominion. <laughs> in terms of the race of points, yes, you're correct. Dominion is a race game. Um, but this is a race as in you've got a figure and you've got to get him across the map um, to the end. And as I said, it's designed by Rainer Knizia, and I would argue it's one of Knizia's best games. And that is? It's the quest for El Dorado. I don't think I've ever played it. It is really good. And it's one of those things, I mean, it's, it's, you, you kind of think, well, this is a Knizia thing, right? You would never think of putting together a race across a map and a deck builder. And then you play Quest for El Dorado and you think, well, these mechanisms were meant for each other. I mean, they go together perfectly. Here I have a board with lots of different terrain on it and cards that give me the ability to go over different kinds of terrain. And it's all about trying to get my deck and figuring out how and what route I'm going to take based on how my deck is. And do I spend some time not moving in order to buy better cards so that my deck gets better for the future? All of that kind of stuff really fits back and forth. And it just makes me really super light. And again, it's typical Canizia. The rules are really straightforward, but there's a lot of maneuvering on that map to, as you're blocking people and trying to think about how best to optimize your deck. It works really well. Another we're going to have to try. Yeah, that would be a good lunchtime one, I think, because it's, it's quite a quick player. Okay. All right. Nice. And then, uh, and then what else? So the next one, I, I, they're not on your list because I suddenly realized I acquired them actually back in 2019 at HeavyCon, but hadn't had the chance to play them. So these the games I'm talking about mostly, I'm playing just myself and Cindy. Um, and sitting on the shelf all the time since HeavyCon had been Wildcatters. So we broke that out a few times earlier on this year as a two-player. It's not recommended necessarily as a two-player, but we thought actually it works reasonably well. I'm not going to say it's as good as it is at higher player counts. I've played it once at four-player. I very much would like to play it more a few more times at four-player, but it is actually quite a reasonable two-player game. This is the second edition um, rules, so that has altered things a little bit. And uh, it certainly ticks a lot of boxes I have for more complex games. I, I mean, when I'm going to move to a more complex game, I want a good theme, preferably an economic theme. And Wildcatters just sort of hits that spot very nicely. Yeah, Wildcatters shines best at four players. And man, that's a good game. I, I, anytime someone's like, hey, you want, yes, the answer is yes, I would like to play Wildcatters. I really thoroughly enjoy that game. Yep. So that we were, I was pleased to see that it worked at two because the nice thing about us playing it at two is even if it's an inferior experience, we can get familiar with the games and the mechanisms, and therefore it's not such a big leap to playing it with, with more players, particularly if a situation where I might have to teach it. And I, I have to play a game a few times before I feel confident enough to teach it. Sounds good. Then the other one from HeavyCon was The Ruhr, um, which we picked up at HeavyCon. And that, that was, in the end, that was a, you know, we played it three or four times, and that's going to be enough. I'm, I'm done with it. Um, the central mechanism of you're moving this barge down the river delivering coal, and it can really only go one way. It's extra effort to move it upriver. That was, that was a really nice mechanism. But the rest of the game was kind of, eh, eh. No, no, I'm bored. Bored now. It was just didn't 
crack me. Which now, is a shame because it's got a BGA implementation, but I'm I don't want to teach it to any of my friends. So have you played it with more than two players though? That's to be fair. We did not play it with more than two players. I just didn't see it shining at the higher player count though. I'm not saying that it's the end all be all, but I, so this is originally Rushefort, right? The, the original Spielworks game that kind of put Spielworks on the map and then uh, picked up and, and reprinted as the Ruhr from Capstone. And I think the game is better with more players, but I don't know that there's anything in there that is going to just fundamentally change the way you feel about it from two to four. But I think it's worth trying at least one with more mm. than two. Yeah. I just don't want to teach it. That's fair. Yeah. So that was a, that was a bit of a bust. And then the next choice um, was really the first game we bought sort of really post COVID. And one of my things now is I want to play games that I'm going to be able to play on BGA with my friends. Um, because we want to be able to play the two of us together, get familiar with a game, and then be able to, to play it with a broader number. So I ended up picking up a game that actually has been on my to-buy list for a couple of years, which is Toi. Um, a game that I know you have always been a bit uh, wary of yourself. Um, I mean, it's dice drafting and play. Like, I should love this game. No, I don't. I don't. And I, don't and I can, I'm actually kind of surprised, because Me I mean, not just as it's... Not just is it dice drafting, it's dice stealing. It's you've got those lovely, you rolled a lovely pair of sixes. Here, have a bit of money and I'm going to steal it off you before you even get the chance to use it. I mean, it, I mean, talk about knives across the board. It really is a very interactive game. I'll try it again. And it could be the theme or, or in the artwork that just really doesn't grab me. But normally, I mean, I play winsome games, so that that really shouldn't matter one way or the other. But for some reason, Twa has always been a bugaboo game. It, I mean, I would put it very similar category to Concordia for me. Like, look, it's a, you know, really popular, good game, but just, eh. but I will try it again. I will certainly try it again. Yeah, I was, I was very happy with it. It's a good choice, good implementation as well on BGA, so it hit all the boxes I wanted to be hit by it. And then the other thing I'll mention, although it's not strictly a game, um, but I've been buying a hell of a lot of decks of playing cards. I was going to ask it, because I know people want to know about this. You, you and your uh, uh, decks of uh, artwork uh, playing cards. Yeah, it's something I, I ran into kind of accidentally. It's this kind of subgenre of subgenres of you know real niche niche thing. But out there there is quite an interesting little world of people artistic doing artistic playing cards with you know fascinatingly intricate designs and sometimes some really fancy production values with metal met metallic inks and the like that are really quite staggeringly pretty. And uh, yeah, I've been buying quite a few of those. And Cindy and I like to use them playing Gin Rummy, which is a nice, easy game and works well for doing this because we'll play one hand per deck of cards. So we'll deal it out, play the hand. Oh, next hand. And we'll get through about five or six decks of cards in one game of, of Gin. Um, you said quite a few. People are going to want you to put a number to that. Uh, well, I was kind of looking at the at the shelf before I came up, and there's 
I've got nine bricks boxes, and each brick box holds about a dozen cards. <laughs> so do the math. So, <laughs> so nine bricks, and you said about a dozen. So that you weren't. Wow, that's a big number. That that has three <laughs> digits in it. That that's a it big. Does. N- I I was thinking like a dozen. I wow. Why? Okay, you're gonna have to like. People want to see like the library at HCHQ. People are gonna want to see your library of of these playing cards. And and they, I'm really quite taken aback. The creative. I I would hope so. Into them. Mm. <laughs> wow. Oh, all right. So uh, are they, so, is there like a particular artist that you're? you're following or is it just something that just oh i that appeals to me so that one and like and how do you go about finding these because i know people are curious yeah well finding them is um the main entry there's a uh, a guy on the board game geek um who goes by the handle enders game and he's done a lot of reviews of playing cards so he he's where i started and i got uh, quite a lot of suggestions looking at his stuff. And then after that, um, I started to get a sense of what I was interested in. There's a lot of, pretty much all of them do Kickstarters. So I've got probably about a dozen decks on, on Kickstarter um, waiting to come over the course of the next few months. Um, and you and the nice thing about with Kickstarter is they, they have to obviously show you a lot about the deck. So you get a good sense as to whether it's the kind of thing you're interested in or not. So um, what are, what's the quality of these cards too? I want to know. So as somebody that, you know, is pretty uh, elitist when it comes to, to card quality, like playing cards, um, like, you know, um, I, I mean, as far like as I can tell, excellent, because I mean, most of them are USPCC bicycle quality uh, cards, which are nicer than what you get in most board games. True. Right. Yes. Um, or Katamundi, which is also... I mean, there's some that are a bit closer to board game quality cards, um, particularly there's a Ukrainian outfit, NPCC, that does some really beautiful cards, but handling is not quite as good as USPC or, C or okay. Katamundi. All right. um, but um, on the whole, um, the quality is really high because, I mean, these are... As, as I said, the, the, these card producers from USPC, they've definitely got it down. So certainly to me, as someone who hasn't used playing card decks for years before I got into this, I was really quite taken aback by how well they handled and everything. And, and they hold up to multiple, you know, like you don't worry about messing up the artwork on the cards and everything? Well, my attitude is I'm buying these to use them and to appreciate them, and the way to appreciate them is to play with them. Of course, when you've got that many playing card decks, you're going to take you a while to cycle through them all. So, Fair point. <laughs> so I, I, I don't worry too worried about messing them up simply because it takes a long time to get through them. And we've got one of your card shufflers now, so that you uh, popularized for it, us. So. It, it works really well. It really does. Like the little manual hand crank thing for, uh, I mean, with a regular deck of cards, I'm just shuffling, you know, bridge shuffling and everything else. But yeah, that, that little manual shuffler works really well. So yeah, that's been my uh, particular weakness for over-acquisition. But the nice thing about playing cards is they don't take up much shelf space. Fact. About the size of a deck of cards. (laughs) 
So what else? There's one more on your list. Yeah, but we're going to do a whole review of that. So okay. All maybe right. I'll leave that till then. Fair enough. Uh, for me, I didn't go back quite as far. And I'll be honest, I, I, I went through the, the, uh, the studio here to see if there was anything that I was forgetting. I don't think so. But there's, I only went back a, a handful of weeks. Um, and to the best of my knowledge, there have really only been three things that have shown up. Uh, in fact, two days ago, when I actually did manage to leave the house uh, for something that wasn't just to the dog park or to, to walk Lincoln, was a copy of a, a game called Demeter from my all-time favorite name for a board game publisher. Sorry, we are French. That's the name of the publisher. Sorry, we are French. And uh, yeah, it looks like kind of a like flipping right. I think it's one plus players, 20 minutes. So, you know, it's, it's a filler. Um, and it has like dinos. But it looks, yeah, I don't, I'll be honest. I don't know a lot about it. It showed up the other day. So I'm curious to check it out. Then uh, the other two I do know quite a bit about, and that's uh, Beyond the Sun. Just got a production copy of that. And uh, a pre-production, and I might be wrong, but it might be the only copy in existence of, uh, of Coffee Traders, the one that I did the big kind of unboxing and showing off of the uh, pre-production copy of uh coffee traders and wow a there's a lot of stuff in that box something like 400 pieces in that it's ridiculous and uh and the artwork looks ridiculously good mm. same uh same graphic design and artist as uh bus from capstone and they did a really good looking job for her on coffee trader so i'm really happy to see where that's come along because i've been following that for two, three years now, whatever it is. So yeah, that looks fantastic. And I know it went open for, uh, for pre-order and mm-hmm. one thing, and I think it's okay that I say this. In fact, uh, so I have a bi-weekly meeting with clay, uh, to talk about upcoming games. There's a lot of stuff that I can't talk about yet. Uh, unfortunately, but the one thing he did mention is something that he has really, uh, learned that he really enjoys is having a pre-production like near final version of a game not just a prototype but a a legitimate pre-production version of a game before like pre-orders open for his games going forward he's learned how much i mean people just like seeing that and i was like uh yeah i i think that's a great idea so i think he's gonna try and do that more at capstone to have an actual pretty close to the final version of the game before, you know, when a game is announced instead of it just being, okay, it's going to be a year, but here you go. Um, just artwork wise, but no, having the actual game. And I, he and I had a, a call earlier today about that and looking forward to him doing that going forward. I think that's a great idea. That's what he did with coffee traders. And there's, there's more stuff coming um, that I can't talk about. So looking forward to well, Coffee Trader sounds interesting to me because it's the same designers as Wildcatters. It is, um, and it is a really good game. I haven't played the final version of it. Like, I played it back in, God, when was that? January, maybe? Uh, what I was told was the final version, but it's since changed since then. But the majority of the game is going to be the same as it was, and 
I have loved every single iteration of that game as it gets more and more streamlined, but not to the point to where they've streamlined out the enjoyment and the meaty decisions of it. So looking forward to that. I, I think you're going to love that one. Mm. So I look forward to it. Moving on to anticipation or anything that's, you know, that you're hunting, what you got? Well, on the anticipation front, when I was last on this show a year ago, my answer to that question was, I'm looking forward to getting Madeira early next year. How's that worked out for you? I'm looking forward to getting Madeira early next year. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely been a cluster of a um, Kickstarter. I honestly don't know who or whenever it's going to turn up, but I'm, I'll sit there patiently for it. You know, let, let me go on a tangent on that, because uh, during my, my phone call with uh, Clay today, this got brought up. With as weird and as just unprecedented as 2020's been, I'm willing to give pretty much all publishers a pass for being patient on stuff, whether it's delivery of a Kickstarter or a pre-order or whatever, I'm willing to, you know, just be like, yeah, you know what? It shows when it shows as a, you know, now I'm not saying I'm going to give them another two years after things, but I'm saying 2020, I'm willing to give folks a pass. And, and Clay, Clay was lamenting that, uh, that not, not everybody takes my, uh, my patient uh, thought process on that. Apparently there are some very impatient folks out there, which look, I mean, if it's a pre-order or if it's a Kickstarter, look, people have given money and they want what they've paid for, et cetera, et cetera. I understand that. But here we are in December and COVID. I mean, I, I never imagined having to wear a mask to go out in public. So yeah. I'm, willing, I'm willing to give a pass. And to be patient on this stuff. So, and I am too. Um, I mean, part of the reason I did a Kickstarter with uh, with this was because you know they're a small company. They're not a big outfit. They're doing a small thing, and I realised the risk involved and all the rest of it. And I and I and I'm patient. It's not as if I've got a shortage of games, right? But I desperately need this game. The thing that has annoyed me a bit about this Kickstarter is communication. So what's your game historically? Not, not always the best when it comes to, to communication. That is a, that is a fair, fair uh, crit- critique there. Yep. I agree. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the contrast I put it to is Roxley. I mean, I've done two Kickstarters with Roxley and both times I've been horrendously delayed because iron clays ended up being way more complicated than they thought they would be. Um, but the point is that Roxley made a real point of saying, we're going to send a message out every two weeks, even if the message kind of says of not much other than, well, there's no news since the last message. And I think that discipline of we're going to send the message out regularly does make a difference because I felt a lot more comfortable with the Roxley delays than I did at times when um, Madeira just, just went silent for you know, a month or two. Yeah, that's one thing that I've always, always said, that if you're going to run a Kickstarter, I would think a regular update, even if the update is we have no update, just smart. It keeps the, keeps the uh, 
uh, everyone chill in that regard. You know what I mean? Yep. Yep. So that's been my main anticipating. And I'm at a, when we're playing the games that we do at, at home, there's usually a new game that we're kind of working through. Um, and we play it, and I like to play a game at least half a dozen, if not more times, to kind of really feel we've got a good handle on it before I think of buying another new game. And that's why I can live off, you know, four or five games a year um, purchase, which some people, you know, hobby find to be crazy. But uh, I'm now at the point where we've played yin-yang enough that I probably start thinking about something else, so maybe early next year. Um, and I haven't really solidly decided what I'm going to go for, but I'm still, I think, on the line of I want to get something that I can play on BGA with friends, so I'll be looking for a game that's got a, a, a reasonable implementation. I've actually, some of my friends have taught, um, taught me Voyages of Marco Polo, and that might be one. I can't remember if that's another one, though, that you really dislike. I know you've got another one of those that... I've never... I've never played it. I, I'm familiar with it, and I've heard. I've heard uh, it's one of those games to where uh, they all have special powers, and if all the special powers are overpowered, then nothing's overpowered. Uh, but oh, I have right. no personal experience. Yeah, I can't remember which ones. One of those Italian trading merchant sounding games that you have a real dislike of, and I can't remember which one it is. Oh, uh, Lorenzo Il Magnifico. Never played it. Don't know why that game exists. <laughs> You're all right. You don't need to send hate mail. Martin Fowler at you. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, as far as me, um, I'll be honest. I, the last time we spoke, I was planning on reaching out to GMT to get a, a shipment of games from them. And well, as I mentioned at the beginning, that, that really hasn't really happened. Uh, so that still is on the docket uh, for this weekend to do. But the, the big two for me are Versailles 1919 and Imperial Struggle. I really desperately want to get those games and dig into them. Um, and I know Versailles 1919 has uh, a solo, a bull game or a mode. In a, you can play it solo. So really want to dig into that. And I think, I think Jess would really dig Imperial Struggle. So if I can get her into that, then we can stream that. Um, yes, that would, be, that would be awesome. And that is far less intimidating to me than Twilight Struggle would be to stream because, uh, full disclosure, Imperial Struggle and Twilight Struggle, apples and giraffes, same designer, similar name, nothing like one another from everything I've been told. But with Twilight Struggle, there is such a... I mean, they have world championships for that game. So they're like the skill level that exists for that game. Streaming that is just, I'm intimidated as all get out. Imperial <laughs> struggle, less so. The newer game. <laughs> there's, that, there, there's not that, you know, level uh, out there. So I, I think that would be a lot of fun for, uh, for her and I to, uh, to bust out two player. And then there's, there's stuff that is either coming out soon or is already out that i'm at least superficially interested in at some level uh merv merv i know nothing about the game but i've heard good talk about it in slack so that would be one uh the vote which is 
uh, a game from Hollenspiel that is built upon the same, uh, the same kind of bones of this guilty land, but it's about uh, women's suffrage. Plus the, the theme is amazing. That's awesome. Yes, please. Uh, Carnegie is one that I've heard. Uh, it, it looks really good. It looks interesting. And then the two that I think Carnegie, uh huh, Carnegie. Sorry, you missed the Slack discussion, I guess, on the pronunciation of that. Again, I've been avoiding Slack. My bad. Uh, yeah. But so Carnegie, fair enough. Yeah. And the, then the two... Scott said it was, so it's got to be right because he's Scottish. <laughs> okay. And then the other two from uh, from from Capstone. Uh, one is Cloudage. Technically not from Capstone. They are just the U.S. distributor of it, I believe. Um, that is Alexander Fister's game. Um, always willing to look at his games. Uh, Blackout Hong Kong was a big miss, but, you know, I enjoyed Maracaibo. I enjoyed some of his earlier stuff. So we'll see. Cloudage, looking forward to. And then um, and another one uh, from the same designer as Lignum from... Uh, Alexander Hoemer, a uh, game called Imperial Steam. It wasn't originally going to have this this theme to it, but I've I've been at least on the outside looking in at the development of this game, and this looks really good. So completely different animal from a game like Lignum, but it's his next big design. And I I will say this: there is uh, there are currently two versions of the board, the main board of this game. And Clay and I have talked about maybe having the patrons take a look at these and having a say into which direction they go, board A or board B, um, for graphic design stuff. And so, yeah, I'm looking forward to being able to show that off. But, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that game. I have been following that one for, I don't know, about a year now, I would say. So, yeah. So anyway, Imperial Steam, that's another one I'm looking for. Now, that's a ways off, but I just talked to him today about it. So I figure I'd at least mention it because I am looking forward to it. Plus, I was quite smitten with Lignum to begin with. And I think the artwork in Lignum leaves a little bit to be desired is a really nice way to put it. And I think with better artwork, that game would have been a bigger hit. So, yeah, I like the mechanisms in that and I'm willing to trust Alex and his design. So looking forward to that one. There you go. Hmm. Now looking forward to playing. I mean, I just did whenever it was the last episode, the shelf of opportunity. That's an extensive list of games that I'm looking forward to playing. So I, I, I would reference, I would tell folks go listen to that, but I just chose a few that my goal is to try and get goal to try and get all of them played and streamed this is december 1st right december 2nd we're recording this before christmas you know what i'm gonna give myself an extra week this year those four bios genesis er 1830 bc which is a splatter's take on an 18xx versailles 1919 and as if those three aren't intimidating enough, let's go for the really big one, D-Day at Omaha Beach. So there you go. That's what I'm looking forward to, and more Age of Steam, because Age of Steam. How about you, sir? 
Mostly, I'm just looking forward to getting back to face-to-face playing again. It's well, been, uh... you, you seem really ambitious at talking about the spring. There is no chance that we're going to be able to do that by the spring. Zero chance. I wouldn't say zero. I mean, uh, from what I've been reading, if they get enough of the vaccine out... Um, I just can't a, see how that They may be able to actually move it up towards later spring. I mean, it, it, I'm not saying it's by any means certain. It could well be a bit uh, longer than that. Um, but I'm hope, hopeful. You know, uh, and you know what? I, too, am hopeful. I'm just pessimistic, realistically, but hoping you're right. But anything uh, just, just face-to-face? I mean, don't get me wrong. Yeah. I mean, I, I, partly it's also it's wishing some of my favorite games were online that um, aren't online. I'd love to play Brass um, with my online friends. I'd love to play Pax for me, a second edition with my uh, long... Uh, and I've already mentioned Age of Steam. These are things I would love to see online. Um, so at the moment, it's really that kind of thing. When it comes to new games, I'm, I'm not really aware enough of what's going on. I don't guess... I saw a couple of uh, interesting tweets about the the cost that looks like it could be something worth a shot for. Yeah, that and it definitely and and the the setting and theme in that game would be something that's up your alley just from a you know unique standpoint. Yeah, and the the cost I thought was really good, hmm. really good. I enjoyed that a lot. Yes. So, but I've got to wait a long time before I get back to uh, HCHQ to try many of these things out. Positive thinking. Spring, if we're lucky. <laughs> Hoping so. Spring goes all the way into May, so, you know. That is a fact. I don't think there's a snowball chance in hell, but I hope. All right, Martin, you ready to dig into what was completely off my radar and arguably kind of the quiet hit of Spiel 2019? Yeah, I mean, off your radar, it wasn't even present on anybody's radar before uh, you went to Spiel, right? Yeah, no, totally. And we'll talk about that here in a little bit. So we're, of course, talking about Yin Yang, which if you're uh, uh, English speaking, it's, you know, spelled yin yang, but pronounced yin yang. Uh, oh, d- yin publish- yang. I, I, I did extensive research on the internet for at least 10 minutes and uh, I was told it was yin yang. Yin yang? Yeah, you don't pronounce the G, and I think it's because remember Chinese is tonal. So if you go. Whoa, whoa, whoa hold on. Remember? No, I, I was unaware. All right. So it's a tonal language. So an upward intonation or a downward intonation, they're completely different words, which is, you know, really weird. There's five different intonations, I think, for every possible syllable in the Chinese words. So if you think whenever you see one syllable, depending on how you pronounce it, it can be five completely different things. Had no idea. All right, so yin-yang. So we are bound to mispronounce this all the time. Um, but from what I could tell, it's uh, yin is sort of yin, fairly straight, and then there's probably a slight downward intonation on the yang, and you don't pronounce the G, so it's like yin yan, but yan, something like that. But 
hey, you know, that's 10 minutes of research on, uh, on the internet, so it's not exactly conclusive. Okay. So Yin Yang, published in 2019, designed by Dugu Wei. Uh, artwork is actually uncredited on this one. Published by BG Nations. Says it, uh, it plays one to four players. Says it plays in about 45 to 75 minutes. Uh, as far as availability and cost, I don't know that you can get it right now uh, outside of maybe still through the publisher in Taiwan direct from BG Nations. I know there for a little bit, I believe that Tasty Minstrel was importing copies, but I don't know how that's going, so I don't want to direct people in that direction. Uh, but secondhand or possibly through BG Nations directly. And as far as plays and player counts, um, if I'm counting right, I had seven or eight plays across one to four players, like the entire gamut there. I've got you? eight plays, um, five, uh, two of them at three player, I think, with you and Jess when you first got it. One four player at HCHQ while that was still open, and then the rest, um, just myself and Cindy. Um, post COVID, I was I have to give my thanks to uh, Andrew Rank for uh, he managed to get hold of an extra copy and uh, contacted me on the list because he knew I really wanted to get hold of his thing, um, and we he was able to get it to me. So thank the you very much, amazing, Andrew. Without you, it? I would not be able to do this. Wow, good job, Andrew. But yeah, seriously, the herd in general is an amazing collection of really cool folks. So that's awesome. And by the way. Even though it's uncredited on BGG, on the back of the rule book, it does say that the illustration is by someone named Carton, C-A-R-T-O-N, and the, uh, the graphic design is by Y.W. Boyalay. So there's that from the back of the rule book. So I, I want to give credit where credit is due. That said, what is Yinyon about, Martin? Okay. So we have a map of China in what's called the Warring States period of China. So that's about 400 to 200 or so BC. Um, it's a period that there was a kind of very early, slightly mythological perhaps kingdom, I think the Zhou kingdom, that had a certain degree of authority across China, and that slowly collapsed. And the Warring States period was a period when the kind of the accepted rules of conflict started to be abandoned. Um, Confucius appears right at the very beginning of this period and, and is complaining about how society is breaking down and people are appointing people to official posts, not because their father did that post, because they're considered to be good at it. What? That's unheard of. Yeah, he, he was not in favor of uh, people being appointed to posts if their fathers hadn't done them before, or so, apparently. Um... So it was a very t period of great turmoil. Um, it came to an end when one particular um, um, kingdom of these warring states, the Qin, um, created the first unified Chinese empire. And it's the Qin empire that created the terracotta soldiers. Um, if you've seen pictures of the terracotta army in, outside Xi'an, which is an amazing sight. I mean, if you go and see it, it's quite incredible. It's on the bucket list of things I would like to see before I die. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's amazing. Um, so, um, and the, the Qin dynasty actually didn't last very long because the emperor was, uh, didn't hold things together. 
But it kind of set the groundwork for the, the Han Dynasty, which did last for several centuries and really kind of cemented uh, modern China. So we're really before China was an empire. You've got a bunch of kingdoms all vying um, for competition. And that's the map is drawn based on um, that picture. As players, what we are, we are basically monks who are moving around this map, founding temples and picking up goods. And the way the core of the, the, me the me mechanisms of the game is that you toss six coins, um, heads and tails, yin and yang, because yin and yang have a, this um, heads and tails correspondence in Chinese, and using those to help determine what actions you can take. Basically, there are four kinds, of, four kinds of actions you can do. You can move by road, you can move by water, you can place a temple in a city, and only one temple, i.e. placed by one player, can be in a city. Or you can pick up a goods that's on the city, and there's only one goods on the city, so whoever's first gets it. You take your six coins and you arrange them into three pairs, and the arrangement depends what action they are. So two yins might be moved by a carriage, a yin and a yang might be placed at temple, something like that. In addition to the six coins, which give you three actions, every round you pick up a cardboard chip that gives you another action. So in the first round of the game, you get four actions, three by the coins, one by the, um, the chip, the tile. And by the final round of the game, which is the, the round five, you get three actions by coin and five by tile. What you're trying to do, of course, is to score victory points. And you score victory points through two mechanisms. The, the most familiar mechanism, and the secondary one, I think, as we'll get to it uh, more as we talk about this further, is, is area control based on the temples. Whoever's got the most temples in a particular kingdom scores points, and then points a second, and then nobody for anybody else. The more interesting way of getting victory points is the collecting of goods. So when you get a goods, you place it on a 4 by 4 grid that you've got on your personal player mat. Every square on the grid is color-coded according to the goods. There's four kinds of goods, four colors on the map, and you can only place it on the corresponding color. What you're looking to do is to get a complete line of goods, either a horizontal line, a vertical line, or a diagonal line. And on each of these lines, you've got some tiles that will score you points for just about anything. So one tile scores you for how many temples you've got on the board. One tile scores you for how many blue goods you've got. Another temp tile scores you for where you are in turn order at the end of the game. But you don't score those points unless you have a lot of the corresponding line lined up. So what you're trying to do is get these goods, get, as, get plenty of goods, but also arrange them on the grid so they activate the scoring tiles that will favor you in order to get the most points. And that's the heart of the game. That summed it up well. I, well done. All right, so let's move on to the five factors that we think contribute to a game's weight. The first one would be the, uh, the complexity or the rules overhead on this one. And I got to be, be honest, this is, this is pretty quintessential mid-range Euro. And I feel like the rules complexity fits exactly with that. The rules are very straightforward. It's a mechanically rather simple game. Uh, once you understand that you're going to be using the divination of the coins, i.e. the flipping of the coins, 
whatever sides they land on, you're going to be using them in two separate ways as the game goes along. Once you kind of grasp that, and then the second part, the uh, uh, combination of the coins with the chits that you will acquire and uh, to kind of program your actions, once you wrap your head around that, which does not take long, you're off to the races. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I sadly have, I'm still yet to play Rococo, so I can't evaluate this on the official heavy cardboard Rococo scale. But what I can compare it to, for me, the quintessential midweight Euro is Castle de Burgundy. And I would say rules-wise, it is as simple as the base rules in Castles of Burgundy. And in fact, it's a little bit simpler because in many games, such as Castles of Burgundy, I don't want to harp on it too much, although I will harp on it too much during this review. I can, I can see that coming. With Castles of Burgundy, you get lots of different tiles that you can obtain, and each tile has special powers that do interesting things. There's none of that kind of variation in this game. This is much more kind of pared down. So the rules are really very straightforward, and there's not a lot of variety due to different things you can do. You're very much focused on the core me mechanics of the game. Yeah, you're not having to remember, oh, this building does this, this temple does that, or whatever. There's none of that. So I would argue, and I agree with you, that if, you're, if you want to base this on, on, be it a Rococo or a uh, Castles of Burgundy, this is both sub that as far as complexity. I agree with that. So moving on then onto the uh, the planning or the the forethought the decision matrix if you will for the game where do you think uh, uh, this fits as far as weight wise with that and the thoughts on that now here the weight goes up much more than the rules complexity because what you're trying to do is the dominant feature of the game is I think is to move around the map and get the goods tiles and place your temples. And that requires quite a bit of planning out as you're trying to think, okay, what are my options? The the coins will give me a, a fairly restricted range of things that I can do. And then I've got to figure out how do I take these five actions or six actions and make the best impact on what's going on on the map. Knowing also, of course, that everybody else is trying to do the same thing. And that is where you have to do a good bit more planning because you're trying to figure out not just how do I combine what I've got, but how is Edward going to combine what he's got and where is he? Is he close to me? Um, is he likely to get that uh, silk good? Um, so that degree of planning does get a bit more involved. Not to mention that the boards are all asymmetric as far as the, I'm going to call it a bingo kind of set collection for the goods that you're going to be collecting. So whether it's, you know, vertical, horizontal, diagonal, very bingo-esque in that regard. And the boards themselves are asymmetric. And not only are the boards asymmetric, but the randomness of where the actual, we'll call them the in-game scoring goals, the, the, thing, the tiles that you can score at the end of the game, where those end up are all going to be different on everybody's board. So even though you and I might end up going for the same goal, let's say, say it's the majority of temples, whatever, it doesn't matter. How we go about getting those is going to be different because where it is on our player boards is going to be different. And so therefore the goods that we need to collect is going to be different. So there's that asymmetry that also requires you to not only play a heads down game, uh, but also a head up game, meaning you need to be cognizant of what the other players are doing and what they're looking to go for as much as you can, because, you know, 
as the game progresses, you get more and more information as they start collecting their their uh, their grid or their bingo grid, so you can kind of see how that goes. However, there are things that can adjust those that allow you to move those scoring tiles on boards. So you could actually, you know, faint a little and fake in the direction that you want to go. And the reason I'm bringing up all of this right now is the fact that there is a fair bit of planning that goes in here because I need to be able to get to that good before Martin does, or else I'm going to have to go in a different direction because your, your monk is going to be traveling along the route or along the roads and, and along the, uh, the rivers. And you need to be able to have a mix of being able to make that trip. I mean, you can, there's no teleport, teleportation in this game. So you have to, between the divination of the coins that allow you actions, as well as the, the chits that you've acquired that allow for certain actions, you need to be able to get from point A to point Q, eventually, theoretically, you know, following the path that you're setting out for your monk. So you need to try and plan that, but you also need to be able to, you know, adjust when people thwart your plans with all of that. So I guess that's a long way of saying it's both tactical and strategic. So you have the short-term things that you're looking at as well as the long-term. So I think there's a reasonable amount of planning here and not just uh, a highly tactical game in general. And another factor that fits into the planning is the area control. So you might be saying to yourself, oh, I nearly need to get some of these goods here, but I really ought to get at least one temple in, into the Chu territory to see if at least can get some scoring on the area control aspect. So you're also balancing everything else with the area control. And of course, the area control is very much watching what everybody else is doing so that you can see how the points are going to line up. Yeah, so I guess what we're both saying is a fair bit of this game's weight comes from this aspect of the game. Which, any good game, I feel like it should, right? This aspect, the planning and the, uh, the decision matrix. Then there's the uh, luck and random factor. Yeah, so here the most obvious um, random factor is this tossing of the coins at the beginning of the game. Um, and that sets up your whole turn, really. And again, I'm going to draw the comparison again to Castles of Burgundy. Um, because in Castles of Burgundy, your turn is very much governed by um, the dice that you throw. And, I mean, it's not, it doesn't totally determine what you do. It's, we're not talking Monopoly here, but it definitely sets a very strong constraint as to what options you have. And similarly here, the coins you toss will definitely constrain you quite firmly as what you want to do. Totally agree. There, there are some, I mean, there's, there's variability here. Now, a coin has two sides, right? And you have a total of six coins that you're going to be flipping. So you are limited, but there is some flexibility in, within those choices that you're not completely shoehorned and completely uh, out of control with the divination that comes from the flipping of those coins. But I think that there's enough because it happens at the beginning of the round, that it allows you enough flexibility to adjust and plan for the rest of your turn, while also causing you to, you know, like we are wont to say, make lemonade out of lemons to where you can't, you know, 
it's not deterministic in that way, which yeah. I think is a good thing. Yeah, it's it, it's a not, it's a, I would feel it's an appropriate amount of randomness for this weight of game. Um, also, a random factor as well is there's some randomness in the setup. The goods are seeded randomly on the board. You've also got some randomness in the scoring tiles and your grid. Um, you'll randomly determine what um, tiles go with what score with uh, which rows or columns on the grid. Um, but that's all setup randomness, of course. That's not um, in the play, play of the game. Which I think is only a benefit for variability and doesn't make things rote. So I, I, I see that as a positive in general. As far as game length goes, I think it's, it fits for the weight of game. It doesn't drag too long. It doesn't end too prematurely. It just, it just fits. It's just right for what it is. And there's really, in my opinion, not a lot here because that 45 to 75 minute time frame that it, uh, you know, proposes, I think that's pretty spot on one, you know, outside of, you know, your first round or, or I'm sorry, the, the first game within experienced players, or if there's, you know, any, any AP that goes on with the players. But yeah, I think that 45 to 75 is, is pretty close. Give or take 15 minutes. Yeah. I've timed the last few games we played two play with Cindy and it took about an hour each, each time. Yeah. And that's a leisurely pace, right? Yeah. And then the last one is the getting it like, okay, I understand how to play, but what am I trying to do and how well can I do it? Where do you think this, this fits there? A round or two. I think you get the hang of it. I think so because it, it's, it's not a hard game. Like we, like we spoke about there at the, uh, as far as the complexity goes, it's just a matter of being able to plan your stuff and then manage around both the divination as well as the other players. So I think the game is fairly straightforward and yeah, there's just not a lot as far as getting it. I think it's going to be easy to pick up um, and it's just an enjoyable experience. So ultimately weight wise, where would you put this? I would put it a little on the light side of medium. If I consider medium to be castles of Burgundy, I would say this is a little bit lighter because you haven't got that variation in tile powers to deal with. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I, I would say this is a step, maybe a hair below like the Rococo. So I think this is a, just a hair below solid midweight, but I wouldn't call it light mid, but you get the idea. I mean, it's, it's a pretty straightforward game that has amazing components, which we'll get into here shortly, good production value and, and a really just smooth gameplay so yeah i think it fits pretty squarely yeah. in there it's certainly not a brain burner but it is a brain simmerer i mean you're definitely a thinking how can i best maneuver myself on the board so it, it definitely keeps you occupied if it wasn't i would hope we wouldn't be doing a full review on it right so moving on to the uh the components let's i, I just kind of touched on that so you want to you want to start on that one And it completely extraneous, however, totally on theme. 
right? Because this is pretty true to form that that the tortoise shell is is a uh, traditional luck inducing like uh, for 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 all of this. I think this is a wonderful thing. The game doesn't need it. You could totally just you know shuffle up coins in your hands and dump them out, or you could flip them like you would a normal coin. So functionally, you don't need it, but it's so just fits you know what i mean it just makes it that one little oomph better which you can make a case you know that those folks that enjoy minis it's the exact same idea but it's different for us but yeah there it is so the metallic uh tortoise shells are wonderful the coins obviously are metal coins they have different uh, uh icons on both sides of the coins so that for the yin and yang but they also come with white little tiny little little tiny black and white stickers which are a pain in the butt to place onto the coins but if you don't want them you don't have to use them you just have to memorize unless you can read chinese which i cannot uh which is yin and which one is yan but other than that the wooden components you have wooden cubes for the temples and for your uh, your markers, you have little uh, acrylic gems for the various goods, which I think both of those are pretty standard. You have the custom nah, kind of custom meeple for the for the monks, and the cardboard is I would call it run of the mill typical cardboard uh, thickness for all of the chits and everything. However, the player boards surprisingly thick these are not your and I, I i don't want to harp on this because i feel like the uh the poster child for too thin player boards is terraforming mars but i feel like that's also pretty everyone's probably pretty familiar with that so those are almost you know paper stack card stack these are cardboard and they are super super thick and really solid so kudos to BG Nations for the production uh, uh, quality of all of that. And yeah, I think overall, really, really solid. I think the only thing that they could have done better as far as uh, component quality is maybe a little bit thicker cardstock for, uh, for the cards or the, the, the God cards. And they could have, if they wanted, done something a little bit more fancy with the cubes or temples on the board. But again, completely extraneous, unnecessary. They are perfectly fine and perfectly functional. Um, but yeah, overall, I would say really well done on the component quality here. Yeah, I, I would agree. Good, solid performance. Now, the box size, it's a, it's a big box. For the game, it, it's probably, I would argue, a little too big of a box. Uh, it's over 14 and a half inches by just over 11 inches by almost three inches thick, or that's 37 by 28 by seven centimeters. It's a, I mean, it's, it's bigger than your Agricola size box. It's, it's akin. I mean, it's one size smaller than your Eagle Griffin deluxe edition games. Everything fits. There's plenty of room in there. I think they could have gone with the smaller size box. Um, but because I know shelf space for a lot of folks is a consideration. And it's a, it's a 
pretty sizable box. Moving on to the uh, graphic design, what you got? Well, on the whole, it fits the setting really well, I think. I mean, there's a lot of use of yin-yang symbols and Chinese lettering and all, all the rest of it. Um, and the map has a very definitely Chinese quality to the, the, the graphic design. Um, that's where, where we get it a little on the parallels with the artwork. But it's easy to spot some glitches with, with the graphic design that are annoying. So the first of these is, comes back to these coins. So Edward mentioned you've got metal coins, and there's a convention, um, I gather, um, in more in Chinese society than our society, perhaps, of which heads and tails and how they correspond to yin and yang. And of course, we've got no such correspondence as Anglos, so hence the idea of putting the little white and black stickers on the coins, which is fiddly and ugly and generally yuck. Now, you have to do it for some of the coins because there's a certain coins that are numbered, a numbered sequence of coins, and you can't avoid putting the stickers on for those. I've avoided doing the stickers for the others, and we've coped. But it would be made much easier if they actually went with the yin-yang symbology. So there's a symbology where, uh, and I may have got this the wrong way around, of course, where the yin is a broken line and the yang is a solid line. If they did that on the coins, put the solid line on one side of the coin and the broken line on the other side of the coins, but it would clearly communicate to us ignorant Anglos which side was supposed to be which. But the trouble is, there's no obvious correspondence on the coins. And so as a result, you're kind of wondering, oh, can I get away without putting those stupid stickers on? Um, and so far we have, but, you know, I do, I do wonder. Fair points all the way around. And I'm glad you brought that up because they are numbered one through six. And you do need those for the, uh, for the, the non-player specific coins. The, the, I like the aesthetic about this game. I think uh, from a graphic design point, I think they do a really good job a lot of the places. For me, there are two sticking points on top of what you bring up that I think are not trivial. Uh, the first of which is the colors used within the map itself on the board to signify the different regions. It's very uh, earth tones. It's a lot of, you know, it's yellows and browns and a lot of greens. And by a lot of greens, I'm looking at the board right now and I'm seeing five different shades of green. Now, the problem with that, now they also use a Chinese character, a Chinese, uh, I, I, yeah, a, a symbol for each of the regions that is clearly marked in all of the regions. However, again, being an Anglo-Saxon person, some of them are somewhat similar. And you have green upon green and similar symbols. It's not readily apparent at a glance which symbol is which or what region is which. They are spread up enough to where when I'm looking at the map, yes. But especially in the solo game, there are chits that you have to use within. And it makes it not simple to be able to tell the difference between the regions. So I think they could have done a better job of differing between those. Uh, so that, that's kind of my biggest uh, graphic design beef. Yeah, I'm with you on there. The colors definitely need to be more distinct. And it would be nice to have some Latin script, both on the map and in the tables where you're actually doing the, the area control scoring so that you can 
correspond one place to another. And frankly, just to be able to talk about the, the zones, because I mean, you say, oh, move my piece to over in there in Chin. It would be nice if Chin was actually named in Latin script on the map so that you could at least attempt to mispronounce it. <laughs> Fair enough. However, I think they stayed true to the theme. So then it becomes a question of, do you appease? You know what I mean? To, to, for what it is that we're asking for, but it, it kind of does infringe and impact the gameplay in a little way, but a non-trivial way to where I think that would have been a good thing to do, um, but it doesn't impact the ability to play the game. It's just one of those, it's a lot of greens. I think it's aesthetically pleasing. It's just hard to tell them apart sometimes. Yeah, in scoring, it does get in the way a little bit because you're going, is that green, that green for this region? And it is a little bit confusing. Um, Agreed. So moving on to the artwork. I think they did a really good job. I mean, it's, it's simple. There's not a ton of artwork outside of the main board. The main board is just... I... It just has a Chinese feel to it. The background with the clouds and the mountains and everything. It just gives that aesthetic that when I mention that, when, when I think of that, it brings a certain picture to my mind's eye. And when I look at the board, yep, no, that's exactly what I would be thinking of uh, when, when someone mentions that. So I think they did a very good job of bringing that feel and that aesthetic uh, into the, the, the player boards as well as both the main, the main boards as well i think they did a really good job and and same with the uh same with the box cover yep yeah I'm, the artwork is it feels definitely in its setting it does so if that's your thing you're gonna enjoy that and i mean the theme and the setting here comes through in every aspect of this game so if that's not a draw then i think that this probably isn't going to be a game for you because I think that does play a significant part in this game, both in the artwork, the graphic design, the, the uh, components, the whole nine yards. It's all intertwined really, really well here. Moving on to the rule book. Uh, how'd you find it? Well, I was taught the game by you, so I didn't need the rule book to learn the game. I only really used the rule book for looking things up and checking things, and it seemed to be pretty clear and obvious to find things on the rule book. Yeah, I, I got to say, the rulebook was surprisingly smooth and uh, easy to follow along. Now, the solo game had a, had a handful of questions that I think that could have been fleshed out a little bit better. Um, but for this being a non-native English game, I think they did a great job with the rulebook overall. Very easy to learn from the rules. Um, there's obviously a, a, a full teaching that we did on the uh, live stream if you were so inclined. But yeah, I, I'll be honest, I don't think you need that for this game. Uh, but the, uh, the solo game, definitely I had some issues with because the, uh, the publisher was actually in chat and left some comments of things that I had gotten wrong. So yeah, keep that in mind. So the, the solo part, not, not perfect. So as far as setup, teardown, teaching, learning, etc., um, what, how have you found it? Cause you've, predominantly played at two player which really isn't a whole lot different than the three and the four player other than more player boards but everyone's setting up their own player boards so 
Oh, it's pretty easy to set up and teach. Um, I didn't time how long it took me to teach Cindy how to play it, but it was pretty straightforward. It's one of those Agreed. games you can confidently pull off the shelf. You know, if you've got friends around or you're at a, a, a game day or something, and you're going to easily be able to teach that without worrying that you're going to be overburdening people with a long teach. Yeah, I think this would be a good jumping off point if there are those that are interested in a Chinese theme. I think this would be a good, great gateway game. It could be. Now, granted, it's going to be a little bit harder to get a hold of, I understand, but I'm saying if you do happen to have a copy, then I think this would be a, a, a great game for that. I agree. And as far as, like you said, the, the teaching and learning, both aspects, pretty straightforward. Not, not going to be difficult for folks there. And set up and tear down. Uh, is is really quite simple. You give everybody pieces of their own color, their own coins, put them in a Ziploc baggie, boom, done. All right, so obviously you and I are keen on this game. So what do you enjoy about this game? Well, the thing, the core of, of the thing that appealed to me about the game and why I was so, ex so determined to get hold of a copy of it was it, it fits that particular spot I'm often looking for, which is a game that has pretty simple rules but requires enough planning and attention from you to really absorb you in the game. And this is where it, I think it just hits that spot really nicely. I mean, it's very quick to teach, as I mentioned. But then when you're in the game, there's quite a few things you're kind of looking at, trying to trade off, deciding how you do things, and other people's moves affect what you've got to do. So you've really got to be atten paying attention and, and be focused on the game. And, and that's exactly what I like the kind of the classic midweight Euros for. And I think this does an excellent job in a somewhat similar way, going back to your Castles of Burgundy um, comparison, that it's, it's enough to engage your brain, but not enough to tax your brain. It's one of those to where, you know what, get off work, whatever you've been, you know, you had the fan, whatever it is. And you're like, you know what, I just want to sit down and have a nice evening game. And I don't want something incredibly heavy, but I also don't want it to be trivial. This fits perfectly within that to where there's enough to, like I said, engage your brain and some you know, a fair amount of meaningful decisions. And it still feels like a, a main course game. It doesn't feel like a thinky filler type game, but it, but it's not enough to where you're going to be like, whoo, okay, I need a break after this. No, no, this is, this is a perfectly enjoyable midway solid game. And it does everything well, even if there isn't a lot of revolutionary new things here. Another thing I really like about this is the way the rhythm of the game goes. Early on in the game, you've got plenty of room to do things because you can't move that much because you've only got four or five actions. Um, there's plenty of map. It's full of goods. Everything's wide open for temples. You don't really have to worry about what everybody else is doing. But then as time goes on, it closes up really tight and by your last couple of turns you are really figuring out there's that last bit of bronze i want to grab if i do this maneuver i can get there before edward and it becomes a really tight game and i like the fact that you get that tightening um about what you can do with it, it uh, that gives a nice it allows you to learn the game while things are fairly relaxed 
and then ramps up the tension. So you get to quite a tense last couple of rounds. And on that note, the decisions you make early in the game do clearly impact your games or your actions later on because every round you're picking up these these chits, which they will allow you. They are kind of like a, uh, I don't want to call them a bonus action, but they are one of those four key actions. They are either you're going to move via road, move via water, you are going to build a temple, or you are going to pick up a good. So just like the coins, they're giving you an additional action. And so the decisions that you make to be able to claim those chits early on or every round, you're stuck with those chits every round. And so you, it's just a matter of, okay, I now have these six coins and in pairs, I put them in, you know, I could do like a, uh, say for instance, a, a white on top, or I'm, I'm, it might not be exact, but a yin on top, a yon on the bottom. And that allows me to claim a good. Okay, so I have that shit for the rest of the game. So now it's just a matter of programming out my turn. And so by the fourth and fifth rounds, you've acquired these four and five chits to go along with your actions that you're going to be taking with the uh, divination coin. And now you're like, okay, I have these six coins to make three pairs. And I have these series of chits that I've acquired. How do I position myself and program myself to my monk to be able to do these actions that a help with the area majority as well as my bingo board and figuring that out is both somewhat tense and a good little puzzle that you're trying to figure out for yourself, but you're not hamstrung by the choices you made earlier. Because you still have that variability of those divination coins to where, man, I really need to be able to travel by water, but I only have one boat and I need a two. Oh, wait, I can use these two. Uh, I can use a, a, uh, a yawn and a yawn coin to make a boat travel. Okay, so I have a second boat. So that leaves me these other four coins. Now what do I do with those? And trying to, trying to maximize with that is a really, really fun little puzzle that you're playing within your own little uh, world there. Yeah. And I mean, we're focusing on the actions. I, I should point out there are a couple of other elements to the game as well, but we, I know it's not worth going into them, but there is, there's just enough, I think, to really keep you on your, on your toes a little bit. I mean, the last thing that, that I've got that I really like about the game is the setting. Now, as if you've ever heard me talk about games, you know I'm a big fan of Dan Thoreau's um, notion of the difference between theme and setting. The setting is kind of the the artwork and the components, and the theme comes from how the, the mechanisms of the game fit in with um, with that. And this, in terms of theme, is definitely an abstract. I mean, there's no sense of I'm a monk moving around China building temples. You don't get that sense at all. But the setting is very rich. And it's partly because of the bling of things like the tortoise shells and the, the yin and yang coins. But it really all, the art and, the, and the, these components and also the theme of the game and perhaps even the certain mental state that it puts you in does actually create quite a memorable experience. And I don't want to minimize that because, let's face it, if you've been playing games like we have, you've played a hell of a lot of midweight Euros about 
trading in the Mediterranean. And it's kind of, oh, yeah, another game. What was that? Princes of Medici or um, was it Lorenzo El Florence, the Concordia? Um, I don't, can't remember, right? It's whole bunches of this stuff. Pull one of those games off a shelf to play it with friends. They'll go away and think, yeah, that was a good game. I can't remember what it was called, but it was okay. Pull this off your shelf and play with friends, and they'll go, oh, that really cool Chinese game. Wow, with a sort of shell. It, it will stick in your mind. And, you know, there's something to be said for a game that will have that impression. And I think that sums up what makes this special. There's nothing revolutionary here. We're not reinventing mechanisms. We're not, and by we, I mean, the design, you know, there isn't any of that. But it just, it feels different. There's a feel about this game that just feels a little bit more. And I think if that matters, then I think that's, that's what you're picking this up for. Just the, it's not cool bits. It's, it's just the feeling that it gives you. And yeah, I think that needs to be stated more because I think that that is, that is what I would argue is the key component that this game has is they just encompassed a feeling to this game that isn't in your quote unquote soulish Euro, you know, even though the mechanisms are kind of soulish Euro E. If you strip away the theme and all you're doing is flipping some basic coins and, you know, putting them together to be able to take actions uh, and moving a dude around the board to pick stuff up or drop stuff off at its core, that's all it is. But yeah, the feeling absolutely needs to, uh, it just, it just works. So on the flip side, things not super keen on. I think the main thing that, that strikes me that I'm not so keen on, and I'm not sure yet how important it is to me, is I think really strategically it's pretty one-dimensional. Um, and this may be biased a bit because we mostly played it two-player in the, in the last month or two, um, but it really does very much seem to um, rest on how many good tokens you get. So if I, if I get 12 good tokens and Edward only gets seven, I can complete a lot more lines on that 4x4 four four grid than he can. And each line is going to be a significant chunk of points. Now, I tried one of my two-player games mostly ignoring the goods tokens and just going heavy on area control and then just scoring for the thing, the, a couple of lines on the bingo card that really matched with that, and Cindy slaughtered me. Um, and although one case is not by any means enough to make a, a firm conclusion, I definitely came out feeling that really this game is about the goods tokens. And therefore, if you want a game that's got, you know, when I think of a game like Concordia, I think, oh, there's lots of different variations in strategy. Do I go for the high um, value goods and try to sell to do things? Or do I go for the lower value to get into the towns quicker? I've got lots of options more. Um, you know, the people talk about multiple paths to victory and that kind of thing. Not in this game. With this game, it is very definitely get the goods tokens 
And then if you've got a similar amount of goods tokens to somebody else, how you arrange them on the board, the area control, that will make the difference at the margins. But it's very much focused on how to get the goods. And there is, there is a fair bit of variability as far as, like I'd mentioned, the asymmetric player boards, where the goods come out on the map and the whole nine yards. And then in the solo game, the, uh, the order of which you need to build uh, temples in specific regions in a certain order. So there is the variability there. But it is a bit one note. You're, you're spot on on that. And so I don't think there is a ton of depth here. It is a very straightforward game that carries its theme extraordinarily well, has really high production quality, and does a very good job with that. But it's not a game that you're going to be, you know, there's no emergent gameplay here. There's no, you know, oh, I can't wait to see what this game holds after, you know, a dozen plays. It's going to be very similar to how it was in your early plays. It's just maybe it's a little bit more, you know, it's still going to be competitive whether you've had a ton of experience with this game or not. But again, this goes back to that solid, you know, midweight Euro. That's kind of what they do. And so as long as the theme grabs you, then this is something, uh, you know, absolutely worth, worth, worth seeking out. So, yeah, I, I think that's kind of outside of the, the graphic design stuff that you and I have already hit on. I would say, you know, this is a game that you're going to want to play a handful of times a year. And I'm good with that. So as far as comments from BGG, there's not a ton because let's face it, this is a bit of a uh, under the radar type game, uh, but we have a handful of them. Uh, what a nice and original game. The coin system for the actions is a blast. A great surprise. Yeah. And I think the, the, the coin action, the, the divination, the flipping of coins, it, it, again, it's giving you options with your actions. It's just a, a way of doing it. And I think it does it really well. I don't know if I should overrate or underrate this game based on the really excessive production value. From the really large box to the big turtle shell, the excess is really admirable. That said, the coin flip mechanism is kind of silly. It ends up not really constraining your choices in an interesting way and can occasionally be annoying. The pick up and deliver part of the game is also somewhat pedestrian. So nothing here is really all that new aside from the components, which are fun but unnecessary. I don't know if I completely agree about the not really constraining your choices in an interesting way. I think it can, but otherwise I think that's a pretty fair critique. I wouldn't the call game. the production values excessive. Um, I mean, yeah, the tortoise shell is kind of woo, but um, it's made up for the fact that it's different. Right. I mean, Agreed. It's, I mean, we have plenty of games with excessive minis all over the place, not necessarily with HCHQ, but in a, a hobby. But how many other games have got a metal tortoise shell to shake your coins in? Speaking of which, I found this a lot of fun, and I have to admit the metal tortoise shell coin shaker may have played a significant part in that. Yin Yang resembles a stripped-down Orléans at first, but it has its own unique mechanisms. I quite enjoyed the bingo-like endgame objectives board and the feeling of escalation as your actions board, uh, as your actions board 
grows. The chances of getting a dud turn five and six, or four and five with the same coin face are actually quite high, which can hurt the experience. Lovely lightweight Euro that has some great decisions for how simple the rules are. Glad I got to play it as I expect this is going to be very hard to find a copy outside of Taiwan. Yep. Now this last one, it's a bit long, but I thought it brought up some good points. And so I wanted to include it here. The production value is very high. It would have been a cherry on top to have small temples instead of cubes. The tortoise shell is hefty enough to be used for home defense. The English rule book is smooth and easy to read and does an excellent job of providing emphasis on key rules points and helping to clarify what can and cannot be done. This dramatically helps reduce ambiguity. The rule book for this and 878 Vikings are similar pearls in this regard, top notch. I find it quite amazing that a game out of Taiwan has superior clarity than 99% of rule books published in English speaking nations. Luck in the game, best seen as the will of the gods, is easily managed with the many choices and tactical play of the coins versus the action tiles being selected. I found it easiest to plan using all the tiles before using the coins. The coins being flexible could fill in the gaps for the action programming. The game offers enough avenues to make the choice redirection feel thematic with otherworldly forces guiding things. You maintain about 80% control, it feels like, but the variation in the divination can push you in new directions, particularly as other players similarly move about. One player mentioned that they preferred it to many euros because it's not a point salad. You have to target and go after the scoring markers, so it felt good not to have everyone scoring everything. This made the game feel more like a process with risks and rewards. You might miss a scoring shit by a single goods marker, or you might, like I did, move on a path to get two more goods that completed two rows and one column for three additional scoring shits last round, which can launch you to a lot of points. If you feel the game is all about all or more about luck, I believe that to be completely erroneous. How you play and map the divination in actions easily mitigates any luck in the game. The order of actions and how you choose tiles all mitigate the luck in the will of the gods. You paint yourself into a corner with overly focused tile selection or ordering your actions wrong, that's not luck. The gods blocking options off acts to focus options more than it limits choice. It's a thematic idea that is pretty unique to this game. Players don't have full control to run the strategy they want. Everyone is scrambling to work around the gods' minor obstacles, and this eliminates the full control players often have to manipulate the game to their purpose and thwart others. It feels in a thematic way almost cooperative as everyone groans a bit with the way the divination falls. Everyone's working against the others to win, but everyone's trying to make lemonade out of the lemons being tossed at them. Generally, at our table, people felt positive when someone got a great divination and could feel the pain of a bad divination. Like life, we've all been there. Yeah, I think that, there, I think that, that really sums it up really, really well. That's a nice summary. So, anything else you would like to add as far as a summary, sir? Well, a little summary would to say that uh, uh, Yin Yang is a slightly lighter medium game with simple and elegant rules and an absorbing brain-simmering gameplay, all set off in a striking and memorable setting of ancient China. 
While it's not the kind of game that's likely to repay regular play with a strategic depth of a Knizia, it's a good game to pull off a shelf for a memorable low-key experience. I'll be honest. Nailed it. Seriously, that's exactly what this game is. If, if the theme interests you and you're looking for another game of this weight with something that is going to leave you with a memorable feeling, then I recommend seeking it out. If not, no worries. Easy enough to pass it by. So as far as a rating goes, we rate on a one to six scale. One, burn it with fire. Six, Hall of Fame. Where you got this, sir? It's certainly a game I like, so it's at least a four. It's definitely not Hall of Fame, so it's certainly not a six. So the question is, is it a four or a five? And here, I must admit, I'm somewhat unsure. In many ways, I mean, we've said this before, that the more important thing than the numeric rating is what role does it play in my collection? And this is definitely one of those games that's going to sit on the shelf, maybe pulled off a couple of times a year, quick to teach, people can enjoy it, and they'll definitely remember the experience. But where does that fit on those, those two ratings? Now, for me, the difference between a four and a five is if the house burnt down and I had to buy my games again, would I go and seek this game out and buy it again? Or would I say, ah, that was good, but I don't need to have it again? And to be honest, I'm actually not sure at this point. Um, it, it's really dangling on the edge between four and five. So, you know, we've got to take our heavy cardboard, um, Martin Wallace-trained predilections into account and round down to a four. Um, but I'm not saying that I might not tip it up to a five if you ask me this in a year or two's time. I think that's, that, that's actually really well put because I, I had the same thought. Okay, is it a four or five? Because I feel like it fits somewhere in that range, right? For the exact same reasons. Now, scarcity, uh, the, uh, uh, the fact that it's, you know, it's hard to come by, so that might push it up more towards a five for me. But if, if you take that out of the, out of the comparison, and take that out of the judgment, which I think you should do, then, yeah, I think this is a, I think this leans more four than five, but similarly, I enjoy the feel I get when I play this game enough to where it's at least in that consideration for being a higher rating, but in the end, I feel pretty good with it as a four, but with it only being a scale of one to six and it being a bell curve, the majority of games are going to fall in the three to five range. You know what I mean? Uh, that I feel like that kind of does the game a disservice. If you just look at the number that this is rated on, but there's a little bit more granularity to it than just that number. So hopefully, hopefully our review has done a good job of, helping you decide whether or not Yin Yang is going to be good for you and your game group. So there you go. That's it. That's our review of the surprise hit that was completely off of the radar. And I've told this story a little bit before about how this came about. But the day before Spiel begins on Wednesday, there is the media event. And there it's basically a, it's like show and tell day for the publishers in the media. So the publishers 
have table space in this media room that they have the games all, you know, displayed out. Now, they're not necessarily set up for play, but they're there to show off the components and everything else. And so, you know, obviously, Eric Martin in the past has always done a wonderful, pretty comprehensive uh, listing of all the games that are going to be available at Spiel. And not all of those games are represented in the media room. However, when you go down to the media room, you know, you're going to see the, you know, the, the, the big games that you're expecting to see down there and everything else. But you also have these super tiny off the beaten path publishers that you might not otherwise see. And that maybe did somehow didn't make it into the pre-Essen list on BGG. And this is one of those. Jess and I were walking through the media room and we saw this game and we were like, that looks, that looks really good. What the hell is that? And it's Yin Yang. And so some of the, some of the games have a media representative there. They have, you know, whether it's the designer or the publisher or their media relations, whoever the person, depending on the size of the company, sometimes all of that is one person. Uh, and sometimes they're there and sometimes they're not. But if they're not there, they'll have either a card or a sign up there. It says where their booth is. And so I made a point. I, we saw that. We made a point to go check this out. And we don't sit down for demos very often or for a whole lot of long conversations for games at Spiel simply because there are so many games to go and see and pick up in the whole nine yards. Even though it's four days and a ton of hours, you still you can't spend a lot of time at any one booth. This is one of those, though, that we did, and we are so glad that we did because as soon as we picked it up, as soon as we got the, uh, the elevator pitch for the game, it sounded fantastic. We then played it, and it was, it was just fantastic. And we were really excited to tell everybody about it. When people would come up to me at Spiel or Jess, hey, what was the one big surprise that you've seen, like that you didn't expect? This is the one that we were highlighting. And wouldn't you know, it sold out at Spiel. So that was really awesome to see. To help a small publisher with a really solid, uh, really good game uh, get that kind of of result at Essen, that felt amazing. And I was really, really glad for it. And I'll be honest, I'm happy I have a copy. I'm excited to play it more. So yeah, I think it, it does really well, as we've said. And uh, yeah, so check it out, BG Nations. Yep. Well, I was really pleased that uh, I got the chance to play it with you when you brought it back, because uh, it was a real, real treat. Um, as I said, this kind of simple, medium, nice, absorbing game has a very definite uh, spot in uh, my collection. And uh, Cindy's been enjoying it as well, partly because of the fact that she keeps beating me. But um, eventually I might figure out a way. <laughs> it's weird how that has an yeah. effect. <laughs> right? That's... And I will say that, honestly, everybody that's played this game has enjoyed this game within our group or even that had tried it at Essen. Uh, everybody that gave me some sort of feedback, hey, we picked up a copy of that and we played it that night and really enjoyed it. Thanks for the tip. So yeah, hopefully that came through in the review. And yeah, I'm really, really happy to support a tiny publisher like that. I, I think that's awesome. And thank you to BG Nations for the review copy of the game. And uh, yeah, I I'm excited to see uh, what else they come out with. I do know that um, they have some other stuff out there and, and looking forward to dive into it. So there you go. 
So, Martin, it was let, let's not let it be a year again before we have you back on the podcast. Well, I'm easy to find. You know where I live. Fair point. In fact, you're going to see me tomorrow uh, before the snow hits. I need to run over a couple of games so you can enjoy them uh, over the, the Snowden holiday or weekend this weekend. All right. So that's it. Uh, if you guys enjoyed it, let me know. Uh, reach out to me either on Twitter or email or whatever. Heavy Cardboard or contact at heavycardboard.com. Martin, how can folks interact with you? Um, on Twitter, at Martin Fowler. Um, over contact information on my website, martinfowler.com. Although that's all techni- techo, computery stuff. Not very much games. But there is a little board games uh, section where I give my brief reviews of the games that I uh, know well. Or if you support the show, uh, if you're a patron of the show over on pledgehc.com, Martin's over on Slack as well. So the Heavy Cardboard Slack channel, as am I. So thanks again, everybody. Uh, It's good to be back into the saddle and hopefully, uh, yeah, not hopefully, but um, yeah, we'll be back next week, uh, me and another guest. So thanks, everybody. Be kind to one another. Social distance. Wear your masks. Talk to you next week. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.